Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. It looks like we are live here on Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie B, and we are live for the uh, not the Grayson versus Kent Hoven debate, the much anticipated debate that uh, we have rescheduled. So it is still going to happen. It is going to happen uh, next week. So we've got uh, debates Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And so we are going to. Uh, fill in Wednesday with uh, Grayson and Kent. So it is still on and uh, they will be debating evolution is on trial. Unfortunately, uh, team Hoven over at Dow, they're just having some technical issues that um, I am told won't be resolved until uh, sometime tomorrow. So rather than sitting here and waiting till then, Grayson and myself are uh, going to just have a cordial discussion on the topic of evolution and ancestry. So looks like we've got the moderator technically filling in for tonight, but Grayson and I, we get along. I, res uh, I respect Grayson, I enjoy these conversations with him. He's knowledgeable on these topics. He's read my book, Special Creation, and I'm sure he disagrees with about 99% of it. And so there'll be lots to, <laughs> lots to uh, respectfully disagree on and therefore discuss. So we can also interact with the uh, with the live chat as well. So if you guys have questions, send it in, tag me. I'll be uh, discussing uh, the topic with Grayson, but also um, keeping an eye on the chat. And we'll probably uh, do this for about an hour. We wanted to uh, respect you guys in the audience. You've basically been sitting here waiting patiently for almost an hour for us to uh, begin this debate. And yes, unfortunately, we, we do have to reschedule it for Wednesday, but we still wanted to give you something to enjoy tonight. So Grayson, uh, I appreciate you being willing to engage in these debates. I'm sure your debate with Kent is going to be the first of many. And so Grayson, why don't you give us a brief introduction for anybody who's not familiar with who you are? Um, brief introduction, Grayson, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I would expect most people not to be familiar with who I am since I have not done any uh, debates on this topic before. I've just been uh, listening and engaging in um, in the audience, basically. Um, so, yeah, I'm obviously on the side of uh, the scientific consensus that evolution is true and happens. And I just enjoy listening to these kinds of debates with uh, creationists. So that's... Uh, really by way of introduction. I mean, I'm just some guy that is interested in these topics. Okay. I appreciate that, Grayson. I know you've uh, you've been present on a lot of the uh, debate after show open mics, always a good time, always a sophisticated discussion. So I am glad to see you uh, joining in uh, the debate community. So this is going to be uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, your upcoming debates are going to be fun. Hey, maybe in the next hour, we'll convert you 
and then you won't even have to have a debate with Kent Hovind. Obviously, I'm just kidding, partially. So, <laughs> Grayson, why don't we just kind of start it off this way? You know, this is uh, just free-flowing. We're kind of winging it here. But let's uh, let's have a good discussion here. And uh, rather than you going over your opening uh, for Kent Hovind, we'll save that for Wednesday. Why don't you tell us um, from your perspective of uh, common descent, biological evolution, uh, take your time, basically take as much time as, as you need and uh, tell us a little bit about why you believe you know, uh, biological evolution or universal common ancestries best supported by the scientific data. And what are, let's say, between one and three lines of evidence that you believe are the strongest, um, you know, for common descent? Take your time and then maybe we can just kind of discuss those. And if those relate to my book here, which you've read, we can have a nice discussion on that as well. So, Grayson, go ahead. Uh, we'll give you the floor. Yeah, okay. So I'll just start with genetics. I mean, we sure. don't really need the fossil record or morphology or any other kind of line of reasoning. If we just look at genetics, we can see that evolution is true and happens. There's plenty of evidence there. Um, that's kind of what I was going to touch on in the opening statement with Kent, but I was also going to focus on the agreement between genetics and the fossil record. Um, so uh Phylogenetic trees, um, the evolutionary trees that we can construct using genetics or morphology or embryology or all manners of different fields, um, these trees allow us to make predictions of common ancestors that we can then go look for in the fossil record. And we see them just about every time we pull up a fossil. Um, we never find any fossils that disagree with the evolutionary tree. Uh, I'm not aware of a single example. So I was going to ask Kent or the audience to, to name some that you know, I mean, we never find any squid whale hybrids, um, never find any, you know, bird whales, insect whales. The only things that we find are what evolution would predict, which are whale artiodactyls, like hoofed animals. We find that in the fossil record, which is what is predicted using evolutionary trees derived from genetics. Um, so that's kind of my main uh, line of reasoning that I was going to focus on, but I think that genetics alone is obviously sufficient. I mean, a paternity test will tell you who your father is, and it's the exact same logic, the exact same genetic principles that are at play in uh, showing that we have uh, common ancestors with all kinds of different uh, species that are alive. Pretty much all organisms uh, share a universal common ancestor. And lastly, I'll just address um, the common design argument. You often hear, you know, it's not common ancestry, it's common design. Um, well, this is a model that makes predictions. So if you had common design instead of common ancestry, then instead of uh, one single evolutionary tree with one base um, at the last universal common ancestor, you would have more of an evolutionary orchard. Um, so you would have lots of different trees for each of the created kinds um, and this would be a different model. And you'd be able to test um, using the genetics of modern day creatures, um, which model best fits the data. So you would measure of uh, the genetic information from every kind of organism that we can. You plug it into a supercomputer and, and you ask it, you know, to calculate which model fits better. And it's not even close. I mean, it's just astronomically better fit with one single evolutionary tree with one universal common ancestor. Um, the model of having different evolutionary trees and different evolutionary kinds, um, not evolutionary kinds, but different created kinds, it does not fit the data. Um, the p-values, when you compare this, is like 
so insignificant. I mean, mathematically, it is a certainty that they are not separate ancestries and it's one universal common ancestor. So that would be my answer. Okay, very good. Grayson, I appreciate those uh, opening words. So um, basically what I heard from you, correct me if I'm wrong, genetics, the fossil record, and how they correlate well, um, according to your position. And most importantly, uh, testable and falsifiable predictions. If we have the common design model here, or the separate ancestry model that would basically say that not all life is related through common ancestry. And then the universal common ancestry model here, which would essentially um, tell us that all life goes back to uh, a common ancestor in the distant past, which model makes the best testable predictions. And you're pointing out that um, the common descent or universal common ancestry model you believe makes the better uh, testable predictions overall. Yeah, not just I believe it makes the best conditions, but like this is like mathematically provable. I mean, you can have a supercomputer crunch the numbers, fit the model to the algorithms predicted um, or fit the data to the algorithmic models. And it's like we, we have the data for which model fits best. It's universal common ancestry. OK, let me take a couple minutes here to give my thoughts overall on that, and then we'll kind of just engage it. Back and, and we forth. Can talk for... about, sorry, we can talk about ERVs and genetics and chromosome two fusion, all sure. that good genetic stuff I love talking about. <laughs> okay. Okay. And and we'll let the audience know as well that Grayson and I are planning a, a couple of formal debates in the future. This is obviously just impromptu, kind of filling in, giving you guys something to enjoy um, since we've rescheduled the Ken Hoven debate. Um, so you'll be seeing more of a formal debate in, in the future. Um, okay, so I'll go over a couple things for about three minutes here, and then we'll just kind of go back and forth. So uh, I'm glad you brought up genetics, because I would agree that the best way to determine ancestry or answer this question of ancestry would be through genetics. It's genes, traits, and genetics that are inherited sperm and egg. Not a fossil, not geography, not a bone found in the dirt genetics. That's what's inherited sperm and egg. So that's the most direct way for us to answer this question of ancestry. Universal ancestry or separate ancestry. Now, when it comes to the word evolution, I think it's important that we define our terms. So if, if by evolution you mean changes in allele frequencies and populations over generations, then we're not really going to have an issue there. Because change happens, changes in allele frequencies happen. We can see this we can do genetic sequencing. We can see that there's change. My phone changes over time. You know, phones change over time. Modes of transportation change over time. Technology changes over time. Things change, right? There's, there's no disagreement there. As a matter of fact, change makes sense. Okay, what I call design diversity makes sense. That God would have front-loaded the original created kinds with... Um, increased levels or high levels of what's called heterozygosity, which basically is just a fancy way of saying a state of DNA differences. Okay. Millions of chromosomal differences, millions of DNA differences in chromosome pairs. If, if God were to create animals static without the ability to change, there would be essentially immediate extinction. Because with ever-changing environments, this requires ever-changing genomes, the ability of organisms to adapt. So therefore, if by evolution you mean, according to the slide, 
dogs, coyotes, wolves are related through common ancestry, then we'll agree on that. There's nothing to dispute. But if by evolution, you mean dogs, whales, wolves, and banana plants are related through common ancestry, that's where our biggest disagreement will be. So technically, and as you put it, um, Grayson, and I appreciate it, universal common ancestry would suggest that all life on the planet, whether it's you know your grasses, chimpanzees, humans, whales, cows, crocodiles, birds, all go back to common ancestors, which all essentially go back to one universal common ancestor billions of years ago, where you have your, you know, your, your first single cell like ancestor, your first self-replicating molecule, then you have, uh, you know, multi-celled organisms, fish, amphibian, reptiles, mammals, farm, right? Fish, amphibian, reptiles, mammals, and eventually human beings. Uh, as you can see here on this uh, universal evolutionary tree, humans and chimpanzees are the closest. So technically our closest cousin would be, according to the evolutionary model, would be chimpanzees. So I like to stay as close to home as possible. Here's a tree of life, why we're related to everything. You can see genetic sequences basically um, on a phylogenetic tree show everything related but in terms of the ancestry debate, do these similarities equate relationship or do they, as Grayson put it, equate common design? And I think that's where the um, testable predictions are going to come into play. So I like to stick to as close to home as possible. And what I mean by that is um, are chimpanzees really our closest cousin? Are we related to the great apes? Because if we're not, if I can show that we're not related to let's say the chimpanzee, then that means we're definitely not related to a whale or a strawberry. That right there demonstrates separate ancestry. And I think that's where we're gonna get into uh, some of this talk pertaining to ERVs, chromosome two fusion, DNA function, so on and so forth. So what I wanna say about fossils is I don't believe fossils are the best way to determine ancestry. I do think it directly comes uh, down to genetics. And a reason for this is because we know that today there oftentimes exists more variation within the same species than across or between species. Okay, so the question is, when it comes to just a fossil without DNA, without genetic evidence, without the ability to do breeding tests, how can we determine what is the result of homology and what is the result, the result of homoplasy or convergent evolution, the independent evolution of similar traits that actually aren't reflective of, of homology? That is difficult. Even the evolutionary literature uh, describes how difficult uh, that is with, with fossils, for example, okay? Because, I mean, even today, just look at uh, domestic dogs. There's a ton of variation just within uh, domestic dogs, okay? We have genetics. We can do breeding tests, for example. We can determine relationship. When it comes to, here's the last thing I'll say because I'm basically over time here. Um, transitional forms, nested hierarchies, and homology. Okay, I would argue that these lines of evidence are consistent with both models. They're agnostic to the debate. They're what are called non-discriminatory lines of evidence. Okay, homology, according to the evolutionary model, is due to ancestry, due to shared relationship. To the design model, homology is due to design, common design. Human engineers build in homologous patterns. Human engineers also build in nested hierarchical patterns. Right, sedans share more with SUVs than they do with bicycles 
or than they do with boats or airplanes. Okay, you can build a hierarchy based on design modes of transportation and transitional forms, you know, so-called transitional forms, these mosaic creatures, human engineers actually design what's called crossover vehicles. And also, as you can see here, uh, military amphibious military assault vehicles that blend the features of a land vehicle and a vehicle built for the ocean. So we see these examples in the design world. We see them in the biological world. And so both models can explain the data. And so I believe it's going to come down to what's called discriminatory lines of evidence. Those lines of evidence that are not agnostic to the debate. Okay. Why is the sky blue? Well, because of evolution or because of creation. No, both creation and evolution can explain why the sky is blue. We need to look to uh, discriminatory lines of evidence, evidence that can tell us uh, which is true, universal ancestry or separate ancestry. And I think that's where uh, a good place for this discussion to basically uh, get into. So Grayson, take as much time as you need. What are your thoughts on that? And then maybe if you want to pick one specific line of evidence that can help us answer this question of ancestry, then we'll just kind of go back and forth a little bit on it and discuss it. Okay, sure. Um, I do think that what I was pointing out is discriminatory lines of evidence um, that you're pointing to different like intermediates in like designed um, spaces, like with like the tanks and the vehicles. But I don't really think that that can apply, mainly because um, they those don't reproduce. So there's not any inheritance. Um, so, you know, in order to have the paternity test, you can't have a paternity test on a car. Right. There's no inheritance. There's like the homology in the DNA sequences. Well, there is no DNA sequences. There's no inheritance. So the homology doesn't really mean anything um, in a vehicle, but it does mean something for a paternity test for organisms that do pass on inheritable traits. Um, so I was also going to say like the intermediates um, that we see are discriminating lines of evidence because they line up with the evolutionary tree that we would be able to construct using multiple different fields like genetics or with morphology or even embryology. Um, so we would construct these evolutionary trees and then the intermediate fossils that we're finding with, which have traits of two different kinds of animals um, fit perfectly along this evolutionary tree. There's no outliers. Like I was saying earlier with the squid and the whale, um, we don't find any intermediates with those. Uh, we don't find any intermediates with with squids and insects or with the things that evolution wouldn't say are closely related. And um, whenever you do see the evolutionary model predicting that two types of organisms are closely related, then it makes the prediction that we should be able to find a fossil that has intermediate features between the two. So the intermediates that we find in the fossil record are consistently in line with the predictions that evolution makes. And if it was just, you know, all these different designed kinds, I don't see actually any reason why we would be able to see uh, intermediates between them. But even if we do, those intermediates should be random. I mean, we should be able to find intermediates between whales and squids or between two different animals that, that evolution would not say are uh, closely related. So the the kinds of intermediates that we find are what is um, like, it would have to be all one big coincidence um, in your model to explain that. Okay. I appreciate those points. Uh, Grayson, um, those are certainly worth addressing. So let me share screen here 
again on what you're specifically talking about here with the intermediates. And what I mean by homology, transitional-like forms, which I would call mosaics, because I think they're more so the uh, exception to the rule, right? We don't find thousands and thousands and thousands of interesting mosaics, but we do find a few interesting ones. For example, your mammal-like reptiles, right? Your therapsids or synapsids. We find interesting creatures in the fossil record like Archaeopteryx, Tiktaalik, right? The famous fishapod. Today, we find interesting creatures like um, the platypus, even an otter. We do find these interesting um, mosaics. And um, from the design perspective, we would start from Genesis, okay? Genesis claims to be the history book of the universe. And so, since in Genesis, God tells us that he created us in his image, then we would predict that since we're created in his image, if this is true, okay, we're going to want to make predictions and retrodictions. If this is true, then maybe there's something about us that reflects the divine. There's a lot of debate on what exactly that means to be made in the image of God. Okay. But maybe we can get a sense for how God designed the biological world based on how we design things. Okay, so when we look to the biological world, what we see, as, as you're um, iterating here, Grayson, and I appreciate it, we see in some interesting mosaics that seem to blend the features of different creatures. Okay, Tiktaalik, the famous fishapod, for example, or uh, your mammal-like reptiles that seem to blend the features of both mammals and reptiles, right? Um, today, the platypus, the living platypus. Um, we also see homology. We can see that reflected in the fossil record, but I do argue that it is difficult to determine just with a bone, without genetics, without the ability to do breeding tests, you know, are these similarities actually due to homology or are they due to convergent evolution or homoplasy? Okay. Which is an issue for the evolutionary model because those examples that the evolutionary community say are the result of convergent evolution, as in, yes, there's similarities there, but they're actually not due to shared relationship. They're not due to homology. They're due to the independent uh, evolution of those traits. Prime examples would be dolphins, sharks, and ichthyosaurs. They don't share recent common ancestors. Obviously, according to the universal common ancestry model, all life goes back to a universal common ancestry, but they don't share a recent common ancestor in the same way that, you know, uh, a wolf and a coyote would type thing. Okay. So those similarities in say an ichthyosaur, the streamlined bodies, the uh, design that they have for swimming in the water, for example, the fins, so on and so forth, the structure, you know, uh, the evolutionary model would say, well, no, these are actually, you know, these evolved independently. And we would say, well, no, these are actually examples of independent origin, separate ancestry. And we can determine pretty good with living organisms, with breeding tests, genetic data, so on and so forth. You know what? This is the result of convergent evolution. This is the result of homology. But in the fossil record, it's difficult because you, you don't have that ability, unfortunately. So it's not about the fact that, you know, cars don't reproduce. Firstly, I would say adding reproduction adds complexity and makes the problem for evolution even worse. But what it actually is, is our model that is saying, hey, listen, we're created in the image of God according to Genesis. How does God create? We see a reflection of that in the biological world and everything we see in the biological world, whether it's nested hierarchies, whether it's interesting uh, mosaics, and whether it's homology, we see the same thing 
in human design modes of transportation. We see it in computer code. We see it in all types of things, right? Um, right here, for example, interesting mosaics, you know, your, your Jeep Gladiator, your interesting crossover vehicles that resist classification and lining things up based on, you know, bones found in the dirt, fossils, which again, don't have any genetics. We can't really do breeding tests. Okay, yeah, just like in this image, you can take, you know, a, a unicycle, a two-wheeler, and then a four-wheeler and predict, well, you know what, there must be a tricycle out there, some kind of, uh, you know, bike with three wheels. And lo and behold, it exists and we can line them up. Well, unfortunately, in the fossil record, we see a lot of what's called overlap intermingling, especially when it comes to the hominid fossil record, we see a lot of overlap and intermingling with Neanderthalensis, Erectus, Floresiensis, Naledi, all of these so-called examples of pre-humans. But they overlap, we find them intermingling, and so it doesn't really make sense to, to line them up in a progression. And we also see that a lot with, with other creatures too, in terms of uh, mammals, reptiles, fish, so on and so forth. So that's what I mean by agnostic. Yes, we understand that cars don't reproduce, but that's not the point of our model. The whole point of the model is, hey, let's see the biological world and let's see if humans are designing that way. And even today, it's like humans are now catching up to how God designed the biological world because now we're designing interesting, um, interesting mosaics and the, the amphibious military assault vehicle. Prime example. This is not necessarily designed just for the water, not necessarily designed just for land. It's designed perfectly for that transitional environment between sea and land. So you can't say, well, this is the evolutionary intermediate between, let's say, a military vehicle just for the water and then a tank, a land tank. No, it's, it's built and designed for the environment that that it lives in. And one thing I'll say, and then you take your time, um, I would look to a number of differentiating lines of evidence that I believe the universal common ancestry model can't explain. Uh, firstly, I'd look to DNA function. The evolutionary model would predict that the vast majority of DNA and genetic sequences basically reflect deep time evolution and therefore would represent genomic fossils, broken genes, viral DNA, like endogenous retroviruses, junk DNA. Okay, if that were the case, yes. That prediction, that expectation would meet the universal common ancestry model. But if we actually see genomes of function, genomes of functional DNA elements, like these ERV elements, so on and so forth that we could get into, then I would say that that's a confirmed prediction of the separate ancestry model. One uh, line of evidence that we've discussed before, uh, Grayson, so I think it's fair to bring it up. And I've said a lot here, so I want you to take as much time as you need. The Y chromosome. The Y chromosome between humans and chimpanzees, the evolutionary model says that the uh, chimpanzee is our closest cousin, essentially. It's uniparentally inherited DNA. It's passed on from the fathers. It's non-recombining, it's less messy. Every single male human Y chromosome, nearly identical, 99.999% the same. Okay, we can take all male Y chromosomes and represent them on a phylogenetic tree, and we go back to one universal Y chromosomal ancestor just about 4,500 years ago, which we would say is Y chromosome Noah. But when we compare the Y chromosome to the of humans to the chimpanzee Y chromosome, Okay, you can see here from this paper uh, titled Chimpanzee and Human Y Chromosomes are Remarkably Divergent in Structure and Gene Content. They're only about 70% the same, but it's also about half the size. So if you were to consider the size differences 
architecture gene content, it's really only about 35% the same. I would argue, and I understand that uh, Grayson's going to disagree, and that's totally fine. You know, I, I want to see your response to it. Um, I would say that's far too many differences to explain in just six to 10 million years since the hypothetical split. I would say the reason why the Y chromosomes are so different between humans and chimpanzees is because humans and chimpanzees are not related. And that's a confirmed expectation of the separate ancestry model that we basically derive from Genesis, from uh, the book of Genesis, which says that God created Adam and Eve, two human beings, separate from any other form of life. So I said a lot there, you made some good points, Grayson, so I wanted to make sure I address those. And therefore take your time, take as much time as you need, and we'll go from there. Okay, yeah, so you said a lot. If you could just leave your PowerPoint up, if you could go back to that nested hierarchy of vehicles, something is just bothering me. It's a nitpick, but it's just bothering me about that. Yeah, that one. I think that you got this slide from Nathaniel Jensen, but like, it's just, the, the bottom one should just be vehicles. It shouldn't be unpowered vehicles because airplanes, trucks, SUVs, and cars are all powered vehicles so they would not nest within unpowered vehicles it should just read vehicles uh, i don't know why jensen didn't catch this but it should be corrected i think if you're going to use the slide anyways my point with this slide is that um you know it, when you're having designed machines like this um, you can have intermediate machines that is machines that have qualities of both uh categories at any step here i mean you could have a car intermediate with a plane i mean they make like little uh, vehicles that drive around on roads and then it can also take off um, you can make a, a truck that's intermediate with a plane you could make a plane that's intermediate with a boat um, there, there are intermediates that can be designed at any level of this nested hierarchy whenever you're actually having um, design involved and a designer um, aka humans. Well, there can be intermediates between any level, but that's not what we see with the fossil record and with evolutionary trees, where the intermediates we see are not, like you couldn't have the intermediate between the airplane and the car in this example. Um, you would only have the intermediate with, um, the, with two things in the same category, and then they would have a common ancestor that would have intermediate qualities. You wouldn't see the kind of intermediates um, that you would be able to see um, in things that are designed. So that is differentiating line of evidence. Um, and then let's see, you talked about uh, convergent evolution versus homology in these fossils. And I don't think that it actually matters that much for the sake of how I'm using them here, um, because you never see any kind of um, convergent evolutionary traits that are intermediate between two clades of animals that evolution says are um, not closely related. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily matter. It doesn't matter even if it's a transitionary fossil. Um, the fossil could have had no children. It could have been part of a dead end uh, line. It, it, it could have been, you know, had no descendants in the modern day. And, and it wouldn't really matter that much, um, at least not for the line of evidence that we're talking about here, which is just the existence of the fossils with those intermediate traits. Um, so it, it wouldn't necessarily matter. And the, the thing with uh, them being convergent versus homology is just the, the, co the coincidences that it would have to involve because every time that we see a fossil, um, it, it maps on to the evolutionary tree that we would predict to see if evolution was true. Uh, we're not finding any fossils that 
fall outside of the, the, those predicted um, organisms along the evolutionary tree. And then you went on, talked about DNA and Y chromosomes. So you talk about DNA function, right? Um, and I, I really am excited because this is a debate that uh, or our discussion I really wanted to talk with you about because, you know, you talk about ENCODE product, product, project and the different ways that we can look at, you know, uh, how functional is the majority of, of the genome. And I would say that um, the way that ENCODE measured functionality uh, would just um, is it being transcribed in any amount is, is not a good way of measuring um, its functionality. Uh, I think that the way that we should measure functionality in terms of a way that it is relevant to evolution um, is, are these sequences constrained? So if we look at any individual uh, base pair, does it matter what DNA letter that base pair is? If does it matter if it's a C or a T or an A or a G? And if it doesn't, if there's like a 25% probability when comparing multiple people's genomes, if it's if that position is going to be any letter, it can be totally random, then that position is not contributing to functionality. And we can look at these kinds of uh, analyses at the total genome and see what percentage is constrained, meaning it matters what the sequence is versus unconstrained, meaning it's largely random uh, what, what letters show up there. Um, and we can find that it's very low amounts that are constrained. It's like less than 10%. Um, so, you know, you can say, you know, that anywhere between 10 and 20% of the genome is functional. Um, the rest does not have, have a function that is relevant to its sequence. So it can have like a structural uh, function or something that just doesn't matter what the sequence of the genome is. Um, and if you're just going to look at ENCODE's definition, I mean, you could insert a random sequence into the genome somewhere that is considered a junk DNA location. So you're inserting it, getting rid of what's already there. You're inserting a totally random sequence. And that sequence is going to be transcribed in some amount. I mean, it, it's going to show function according to how ENCODE was describing it. So I don't think that that's a very useful definition of function. And finally, I know... This is a lot, but you brought up a lot here also, the, the Y chromosome. And um, so you talked about Y chromosomal NOAA and being able to trace that back. Obviously, I'm going to take umbrage with the fact that you're using pedigree um, mutation rates. So you're tracing it back, back based on the mutation rate for each generation we see. And then you're ignoring um, what we really should be focusing is on, which is substitution rates, which is um, how those mutations stick in the genome over time. So you can have, um, you know, a prime example of this is um, recombination or uh, sex. When you, when you have, like, you know, when you have sexual reproduction, um, a lot of those are going to be wiped out because you're only inheriting half from each parent. So, uh, like, you're going to be getting, um, like, a lot of those mutation rates are going to go away just because of a sexual uh, reproduction in the next generation. Uh, so pedigree is not really a good way to trace this. Um, but also, I would just say you could do a pedigree uh, mutational, like a, a clock uh, back uh, on any portion of the genome. You don't have to just stick with the right chromosomes. You could go to any chromosome and you're going to get different results. It's not all going to be 4,000 years or whatever you want to say. Uh, finally, the, the differences between the human and the chimp chromosome. I don't know where this 35% similar uh, number is coming from. I 
have tried to find the source for that and I only am seeing like 70%. Um, or, so I, I don't know where that's coming from, but even if we take that to be the case, um, humans have remarkably similar Y chromosome uh, sequences because of a population bottleneck in our evolutionary history. And chimps have very different Y chromosomes because of their reproduction habits, right? They have um, like sperm competition because of the way that they select mates. So a prediction from this, if I was going to say the, the reason for the differences between chimps and humans in their Y chromosomes are that humans are all very homologous with their Y chromosomes and chimps are all very heterozygous with their chromosomes, right? And so there's two different effects that are adding up to make these things very different. So the prediction would be that if there's another kind of monkey or ape that has a similar reproductive mode as a chimpanzee, um, i.e. that there's sperm competition going on, then we should expect for that monkey to also have a very differentiated Y chromosome. And, and that's exactly what we see. I think that there's one other type of, of um, primate that has that level of sperm competition that chimpanzees do. I think it's gibbons, but I don't remember the specific, but there is one other. And if you look at the Y chromosomes, they are just as differentiated as chimps. So it seems like our prediction is validated. Okay, much appreciated, uh, Grayson. I wrote as much of that down as I can. And I will say before I respond, um, I have been saving questions that are coming in from the audience. And I told you, you're going to be... Um, you're going to be evolutionary top dog soon there, Grayson. You're going to be taking us all on, all us uh, young earth creationists. So Zach Hancock, always good to see you. He's an evolutionary biologist, um, and he's saying Grayson is on point. So there we go. I'll do my best to address those. And uh, Zach, good to see you. So, okay, let me share screen and start all the way at the uh, beginning here. And I'm definitely enjoying this. Um, and then I'll work my way to... Uh, the Y chromosome, sperm competition, uh, bottleneck, and then uh, variation within uh, species. So it, it, intraspecies variation maybe is a good way to put it um, with the monk, with uh, chimpanzees specifically. Uh, okay. And then I'd specifically like to focus on the bottleneck too, as I do believe that that's one way to differentiate the model. So um, this one's a slightly different one than what Dr. Jensen uses, but it is a uh, similar template. So um, fair point. I, I would say, you know, one more could be added that says vehicles that has everything, including powered and unpowered vehicles nested because your unpowered vehicles like a bicycle, a tricycle, a skateboard, you know, they're, they're still used to get from one place to another function wise. And one way to do that is for a bike here, you have wheels, handlebars, a seat. And so you're still just based on similarities and features, you're going to have hierarchies within all of these um, groups of modes of transportation, sedan, vehicle. So, so your sedan is going to share more with, let's say, your, your truck, then both a sedan and a truck are going to share with a bicycle even though they're all modes of transportation, they're all functioning to get you from one place to another, they're still going to have hierarchies when you look to feature. Heck, you could even just look at the rubbers on a bicycle 
you know, the, the types of materials used, compare them to, you know, the types of materials used on the tires of, of an SUV. And you're going to find uh, some similarities there. So I, I would say an, a, another group could be added that basically says, you know, um, vehicles in general or just uh, modes of transportation in general. Um, but OK, let, let me move on. If you have problems with that, feel free to respond later. Um, but I think overall, when it comes to phylogeny and nested hierarchies, you know, in the same way that you're going to find and I know I have a slide here in the same, the most important point to consider in the same way that you're going to find humans here on this phy phylogeny, you have humans sharing more with a chimpanzee in terms of anatomy, morphology, physiology, and genetics than between a human and a fish or a human and a salamander. That's exactly what we would expect from the design model, design diversity model, because by definition, every single form of life, every single creature has to be more similar to one creature than another, right? Humans are going to be more similar to something in the biological world and then less similar to other things, okay? Especially because we are all made out of DNA, RNA, protein. You know, we have uh, similarities in, in phenotype, of course. And therefore, it wouldn't make any sense to say, well, humans, because according to our model, they're separately created, should be completely unique and distinct, as in just in a totally another world or tree than any other form of life. No, once we start examining genetics, once we start looking at uh, similarities in physiology, morphology, and anatomy, we are going to see hierarchical patterns manifest regardless of if common descent's true or if um, separate ancestry is true, it would be my point. When it comes to, um, you mentioned uh, in between creatures and, you know, I think my point still stands from earlier and I've got some examples here. You know, we can find a few rare ones because I think you're kind of just saying, well, you know, we have all these intermediates, but I, I'd like, a, a list of some because the ones that we do see the most interesting of mosaics, you know, your, your fishapod, AKA Tiktaalik, Archaeopteryx, um, your mammal like reptiles, living uh, creatures today, like platypus, you know, I would argue that if universal common ancestry were true and we've been evolving for millions and millions of years from precursors. Okay starting from a single cell like ancestor basically up to mammals we should find countless mosaics millions and millions of these so i'm just not very convinced by a few interesting mosaics especially considering it's exactly what we find in the in the design world are interesting mosaics and in the design world we understand that those mosaic features are there for a reason they're they're there for design purposes but that's why i believe it, it comes to and i like to say we need to look under the hood What's going on, right? If these modes of transportation, like these transitional-like uh, looking vehicles, if we were to look under the hood, as you could say, and it was just nothing but junk and, and most of the equipment there and that that makes up the vehicle and, and gets the vehicle running and doing its thing and function, if it was just junk and useless and just leftovers, then um, you know that wouldn't fit well with the, the design model. What's the point? And that's the same thing in the biological world. And you brought it up, you know, ERVs, you talked about uh, ENCODE and basically uh, transcription noise, spurious transcription, because ENCODE, you know, discovered that 
between 60 and 80% of the genome is active. So they were looking at biochemical activity. That's what they're looking at. So we don't necessarily know if this activity is functional or if it's spurious or if it's just noise as you were putting it, okay? I would argue that, you know, it takes a lot of energy uh, to create a, a growing RNA chain. A every time you add a, a just a single nucleotide to a, a growing RNA chain, I mean, that's consuming a lot of energy. And so to say that most of this activity is just spurious or noise, I believe that that would have to be demonstrated because if that were the case, you know, we have mechanisms for one that should suppress all of that noise and junk. We also have a mechanism called natural selection, which should over time weed out all of this junk, weed out all of this noise because it's wasteful of energy and, and resources for the cell to replicate it generation after generation after generation. So it really is just spurious. It's not really doing anything. It's, it's activity, but it's not useful activity going on in the genome. Then why is evolutionary mechanisms kept that? Or I mean, if evolutionary mechanisms can basically take a single solid like ancestor into a whale, I understand over lots of time, indirectly, why can't these mechanisms also remove so much junk? Okay, I think there needs to be a good explanation um, for that. And I understand, I'm sure you'll have a response to that. And the last thing you said here was um, the uh, chimpanzee Y chromosome versus the human Y chromosome. Let me go to the slides here, Y chromosome dissimilarity. So uh, here directly from the paper, the chimpanzee uh, MSY male specific Y chromosomal regions here harbors twice as many massive palindromes as the human MSY, yet it has lost large fractions of the MSY protein coding genes and gene families present in last common ancestor. So if you look at the diagram of the Y chromosomes in the paper, you can see that there's uh, massive size differences between the Y chromosome um, within humans and chimpanzees. Because you're asking, you know, where did you get the 35%? Well, if you're only comparing the Y chromosome parts that align technically the gene content, then yes, you're looking at, at about 70%. But I would argue the fact that the Y chromosomes are just so different in size is even before you start comparing the um, just the, the letters, and even before you start comparing the, the gene content, you're, it's almost like if I had a spoon here and a spoon here, but this spoon had you know half of its handle missing. Well, right off the bat, there's already going to be a 75% difference. A 60, if it's half the spoon missing, then it's already a 50% difference. And then within that half of the spoon and the other full spoon, right? Let's say there's you know 30% similarity. Well, then it's going to be a lot less than if you're just comparing the parts that align. And, and that's what we see with the Y chromosome. But nonetheless, I would argue for sake of argument that 70% is still far too, uh, too many differences. You know, right here, these are sizable differences. And essentially there's a challenge to, to the evolutionists. Here's the challenge, then I'll wrap it up here. And maybe we can take one point and, and run with it. But of course, Grayson, feel free to take as much time as you need to respond to anything. So the evolutionists, they're going to have to apply mathematical models to try to demonstrate. So let's say the sperm competition is true. And I have no doubt that it is. You know, chimpanzees are known to have polygamous relationships. There's a lot of sperm competition. And therefore, their sex chromosomes and the Y chromosome specifically, this uniparentally inherited nuclear DNA compartment, um, it, it can vary more within chimpanzees. But the question is, does it vary as much as we see between humans and chimpanzees? Because remember, 
the human Y chromosome is 99.999% the same. That's very, very low variation. But between the human and Y chromosome, you have at least 70% for sake of argument, but I would argue it's closer to 35 or 40% when you consider overall architecture, size differences, gene content, okay? So the evolutionists, let's just for sake of argument, say the sperm competition argument is true. They're going to have to apply mathematical models to try to demonstrate how a sequence can change extremely rapidly including wholesale rearrangement of significant parts and the evolution of entire gene families in a relatively short amount of time, yet stay homogeneous within a species. So what that's saying is basically human Y chromosomes are homogeneous within themselves. My Y chromosome and you know someone's Y chromosome in, in Africa, nearly identical because we all share a Y chromosomal ancestor. So it's, we're homogeneous within ourselves. As a matter of fact, overall, no matter what DNA compartment you look at, humans have low genetic diversity. And uh, Grayson, clearly up to date on the data here, and I appreciate that, you pointed to uh, the bottleneck. So I've got that written down here. And yes, the evolutionary model would argue that, you know, in, out of, in the out of Africa scenario, either 70,000 years ago with the Toba extinction, or even 200,000 years ago, or both, you know, some say there've been multiple bottlenecks. Uh, nonetheless, that bottleneck took a very heterozygous population and turned them very homozygous through inbreeding and basically generation after generation of these um, same alleles coming to the forefront, leaving, leading to more homozygous genetic sites. Um, so theoretically, that could reduce levels of uh, heterozygosity, but then I believe there's a much bigger problem. If that's, for sake of argument, let's grant that. There's a much bigger problem that I'm not going to get into just yet. I'll save it for the next round because there's a lot <laughs> There's a lot of points floating around here. So we'll get into, into that the next round. But here's the last thing I'll say. Sperm competition, bottleneck, polygamous relationships. Okay. But just like the evolutionary community likes to tell young earth creations that we have a heat problem. And so we'll give, you know, 10 or 12 plausible solutions. What's their response? Okay, but we wanna see a model. We wanna see the math. We wanna see it on paper. Show us how this can, how have these gene families rapidly changed? How have these wholesale, you know, uh, rearrangement of these sig significant parts, how have they changed over time? Show us a model, don't just say it. And that's at this point what I'm looking for uh, from the evolutionary um, community. And that basically addresses it all. And you made some good points, Grayson, that I think is going to lead to some good discussion. So go ahead, take as much time as you want, and then we'll go from there. Okay, sure. So like I said, our model would predict that species that are under strong sperm competition, we would observe there to be this, you know, huge differentiation in Y chromosomes. Like I pointed out with Gibbons, we do observe that that is the case. So that counts as evidence towards that model. Um, the, if we look at chimp Y chromosomes, not just compared to humans, but if we compare them to other apes, because I think most creationists would agree that chimpanzees are in some sort of ape or monkey kind. So if we compare them to other apes besides humans, then we're also going to see just as much of a differentiation between chimpanzees and orangutans or chimpanzees and gorillas. We're going to see about the same degree of differentiation between humans and uh, chimps as well. So either you'd have to say that chimpanzees are a separate created kind um, from the rest of the apes, or, you know, it, 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 it's looking like the evolutionary argument. And then also I would go back, um, that, that slide that you have 35% 
it seemed like that was saying that there's 35% that cannot be analogous on top of each other. Not that there was 35% that there was the same. So that would be saying that there was 65% that could be uh, like 65% of the sequence can be aligned on top of each other. Um, and I would also just point out that when you take the total sequence, so all of the A's, T's, C's, and G's, the entire sequence of the chromosomes that the chimpanzee is still the most similar um, to the humans um, when you take the entire uh, sequence into account. Um, you also said that um, you were bringing up energy conservation as a way that natural selection would weed out this kind of spurious activity, which is a good argument. But I would say that it clearly is more disadvantageous for the spurious activity to be removed, just like it's more disadvantageous for the junk DNA to be removed. Because if you removed all the junk DNA, right, you have an obvious energy investment to create so much of the DNA that is like basically the sequence doesn't matter. Um, but because you have uh, mutations that affect, you know, basically random portions of the DNA, there are some hot and cold zones and et cetera, et cetera. But basically any portion of the DNA uh, genome can mutate. So the more of this junk DNA, the more that you have created a protective buffer um, that against uh, mutating against parts that need to be constrained for function. So there is a benefit that outweighs the energetic cost. So just like in this using the same logic, there is a benefit towards having this kind of spurious biochemical activity that outweighs the energetic cost. So that benefit is that um, Basically, if you were going to try to uh, like mutate your way into a system that would cut down on this spurious activity, you're probably going to cut down on some essential activities at well, as well that are going to have a negative effect. Um, so basically, because of the like three-dimensional structure of the DNA and the way that these transcribing proteins work, um, basically, you're going to have this kind of spurious expression just as a result of the kind of system that needs to be in place for uh, function to be obtained. So it's kind of like a cost that needs to be paid in order for everything to work. Um, now, I would, you know, we, we can get rid of the nested hierarchies of design. I still have a problem with the slide. I think it should just be changed to vehicles and adding one more layer doesn't uh, fix the problem. But um, we can move past that for sake of argument and we can talk about these, you know, these mosaic forms you're talking about. Um, I would say that pretty much every fossil that we find uh, fits um, the definition of having these intermediate um, like forms. I mean, uh, we can, you know, we can look for dogs and bears in the fossil record at, and there, we find dogs and bears at this level. And then if we keep looking at deeper levels, we're going to stop finding dogs and bears and we're going to start finding dog bears and bear dogs. And we're going to start finding forms that are transitional. And the deeper we go, the more generalized kind of fossils we're going to find that have fossil that have shared characteristics among more and more extant species. Um, so, most fossils would be able to count for this um, and you could show the uh, kind of uh, intermediate features that it sh that it shares uh, with different extant species. Um, but if I you keep mentioning um, 
like the platypus as an example of a mosaic species. I just wanted to ask like how I, I don't really see the platypus as being an example of a mosaic uh, creature that has traits between two different clades of animals. I mean, it's, it's a mammal. So if you could just talk about that, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, maybe we could get into ERVs before going to some audience questions or something. Um, I've been wanting to talk about ERVs or, you know, we could talk about mitochondrial Eve or any of this stuff. Okay, Grayson, thank you for that response. Um, I'm definitely excited for more discussion on this because we have a lot to to talk oh, about. So, can, can I interject one thing? I, I forgot yeah, to mention take your time. you're talking about the bottlenecks and everything and, and right, why yeah. and how humans are so um, homologous amongst our, each other. Um, and I would point to the fact that um, humans in terms of our evolutionary history, in terms of population numbers, went from a very small population to a very large population in a relatively short amount of time, right? Just since the agricultural revolution a few thousand years ago, we've gone from, you know, maybe a few million to, you know, almost 8 billion today. Um, so you're going to have, uh, you would expect to see large amounts of homology if you're going from such a small population to such a large population so quickly, um, there's not really going to be enough time to develop kind of a lot of heterogeneity. Um, and that's very much what we would expect uh, in the lens of population genetics. And just to prove that point, um, we can look at other species that have undergone, undergone similar rapid population increases in a similar time scale. So like domesticated animals like chickens or cows or pigs or corn or bananas, all of those things are extremely genetically homogenous. Um, so again, that would be a verification of the prediction of what I'm talking about. So, so I just need to interject that uh, before I forgot. Sure. Yeah. Feel free to address any point that you'd like to, Grayson. And thank you so much. So, um, okay. Let's, and I, I appreciate having an interlocutor here that has um, looked into the data and these arguments because it's a lot more fun <laughs> discussing the data with, with somebody that's looked into it and studied it than someone who hasn't. Unfortunately, that doesn't usually result in um, a beneficial discussion like this. So, um, right, I'll address the points from the beginning, essentially, um, starting with the transcription noise and mutational buffer. If you want, if you want to unmute, you were saying that a lot of the um, areas in the genome that have evidence for activity although you're still maintaining that that activity spurious or just uh, transcription noise, they act as a mutational buffer and therefore it's beneficial to keep around. Uh, I just want to make sure I got your argument correct. Is, is that what you said, Grayson? Um, no, I, not that they act as a mutation buffer. I was saying like the junk DNA acts as a mutation buffer. Um, the like spurious like activity I was just saying is kind of like a um, a necessary byproduct of having a, a functional transcription system. Um, so you, you can't really block or suppress the uh, spurious transcription without causing uh, much worse problems for, your, for the rest of the system. Okay, so the spurious transcription, um, these transcription factors, or these binding sites are basically necessary byproducts of the vast portions of the genome being transcribed in the first place? 
Uh, like yeah, necessary byproducts for having like a functional uh, transcription system. So in order okay. to have the system that we have, um, like it's infeasible, no, like using any molecular mechanisms that we would know about to be able to block spurious transcription. And it would take a lot more energy to have us uh, have some sort of mechanism to block spurious transcription and still have a functioning transcription system like we have now. Um, so even though you are losing some energy, it is still um, kind of like a, a necessary evil sort of. What, what about just suppressing it, turning it off? Yeah, so I think that the basically the ways that you would have to turn it off would ha have to be sort of epigenetic ways like methylation or, or these types of factors. And I think that that actually might be more energetically uh, taxing than just transcribing them. I don't know for sure. Um, I haven't run the numbers to compare those two of like specifically methylation, but um, I think that the cost of actually suppressing them, and then you would also have a cost of that potentially changing the three-dimensional structure of the DNA. Um, and some of this stuff in order for like, if you have uh, two genes that are close to each other, but you methylate a bunch of the junk DNA in between them, then you're going to mess up um, like the a regulatory aspect of how those genes are transcribed and so you're going to you're going to change like the like the structure of the dna or like how the transcriptase activity um can function by trying to suppress that and you're going to mess up more than you solve okay i appreciate that one more clarifying point in question and then i'll get to a full response um and i appreciate your clarifications here so basically you're saying the cost to suppress, remove, suppress in terms of DNA methylation and epigenetic mechanism, remove or block is more costly or would, would use up more energy than just keeping it around. So it, it's easier to just keep it around. Don't, don't deal with it. Just kind of let it sit there regardless of, of if it's noise. Yeah, More exactly. Like the only thing that I would clarify is that yeah. it's not necessarily just energetically um, like it could also like impair the function of of other parts of the genome by trying to suppress these things. It could mess up the transcriptase activity for other genes that you really, really need. But basically, yeah, you, you said it exactly as in a way I would agree with. OK, so not just energetically costly. But at the same time, suppressing it, blocking it, getting rid of it could actually be harmful to other areas with, within the genome, within the genome. Yeah. Okay. So it would affect uh, most sites. Um, I'll, I'll ask one, one last question because I know once I get to responding to all this, then a lot of times these points get lost in the weeds. Um, listening to this brings an illustration to mind and it would be like, and I think we're all guilty of this once in a while, and I think this is the case with me, is over time, our closets or our um, dressers, they just get more and more packed with junk, with shirts, with pants, with socks, with underwear that we just don't even use anymore. You know, I'm pretty sure that 
90% of my dresser upstairs has clothes in it that I just don't even wear anymore. You know, I have a select few favorite shirts, pants, so on and so forth. And then the rest is kind of just sitting there. It's cluttering up the system, cluttering up the dresser. It's, it's essentially junk. I need to do something with it. You know what I mean? And, um, so to me, it sounds like I might as well just leave it all there because it's going to do more harm than good. It's going to create, it's going to be more energetically costly for me to actually just spend an hour, get out a couple garbage bags, clean everything up, you know, send it off to, you know, wherever, maybe donate it, throw it away, give it to friends, family, so on and so forth. So it, it sounds like this is analogous to, to me, just there's no point in doing that. Just leave the system cluttered up, leave my bedroom cluttered up, you know, don't clean up the closet, don't clean up the dresser because it's not going to do any good anyways. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that illustration? Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I think it's okay. I would add to the analogy that maybe in the effort of cleaning up your wardrobe that you accidentally would throw away uh, clothes that you wanted to wear. Um, and that, you know, it's not a perfect analogy because obviously you know the clothes that you'd want to wear, but that, that's how I would add it to the analogy. And if you're extending that to junk DNA, I would say, what if every day you're picking a random article of clothing from your wardrobe, from your wardrobe and burning it? Uh, then you would want to have a bunch of padding in your wardrobe because you didn't, you wouldn't want to like take the chance that you're burning something that you really wanted to wear or was part of an outfit. Um, so that would be the kind of analogous to like junk DNA and mutations. Okay. Okay. So in, in taking an hour or two, you know, one day cleaning out my closet, cleaning out the dresser, even the car, <laughs> I think we could all agree, especially back when I was in college. I mean, the back seat of the car really cluttered up quickly, but it always felt so good to, you know, take a day and just clean it out, give it a good vacuum. You know what I mean? It just, it, it really felt like a breath of fresh air. Um, but you're saying, you know, maybe in, in that cleanup, um, uncluttering the system, one could say, I might throw away clothes that, that, that I would want to a week down the road. Hey honey, you know, where's, where's that shirt that I typically wear when we go out for dinner? Oh honey, you know, that was one of the shirts you threw out. Oops. Kind of thing. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, um, Ended there on clarifying questions. Okay, so I, I understand your your position a little better there, and I appreciate those responses. So, um, what I would say with the junk DNA in general, we do see. Okay, and I've got a couple slides here. All right, the many functions of of junk DNA. So we do see a lot of the so called junk DNA regions, the non coding regions of our genome, acting as a mutational buffer. There's a lot of redundancy in the genome, but where the evolutionists might see that as junk and just, you know, the representation of evolutionary leftovers through millions of years of descent with modification, um, design proponents would see redundancy as something that's beneficial. It's good design, just like we see in computer code. Redundancy is good. It, it's, it's beneficial, right? And in, in modes of transportation, we have typically a spare tire in the, in the back of our car. And at first it might seem redundant. You know, we already got our four tires on the road. What's the point of the spare tire? Well, if we get a flat tire, suddenly that extra tire is going to come in, in handy. It's actually evidence of what's called forward thinking. The, the human engineers that design vehicles with um, a spare tire, they were thinking ahead, right? So anytime you see evidence for forward thinking, 
points us back to the forward thinker. And so I would say the redundancy in the genome, especially when it comes to epigenetics. I mean, we have millions and millions of genetic switches just waiting to be turned on or off via environment. And so a lot of these non-coding areas of the genome, including um, pseudogenes and endogenous retroviruses, maybe we'll, we'll wrap things up with the ERV topic after this round. Um, a lot of them are only active or functional under certain conditions. So what that means is a lot of these DNA elements, they're basically turned off until they need to be called upon via environment to do their, their function. For example, in embryological development, there's a lot of ERV elements that are functional in the various developmental windows to take zygote to um, you know, the baby at birth, technically, where they're, they're utilized, but then they're shut off and then they're repurposed for the life of the organism, where maybe they need to be turned on again and they can be utilized for adaptive purposes. So I would argue that you would need almost unlimited sensitivity to demonstrate empirically what you're saying here, um, because we understand so much of the genome is only active under certain circumstances. We see this with um, mouse genetic knockout tests where they can knock out certain genes that we understand are functional in certain, cer certain circumstances, but if they're turned off, there's no immediate effect, right? Because if it's not turned on, it's not being utilized, you could essentially snip it out. And that's why I say the gold standard for uh, genetic function testing is what's called genetic knockouts. Now, thankfully it's unethical in humans, right? I would actually say to the evolutionists, you know, if you're so confident that the majority of the genome is junk, the majority of these herbs are junk, pseudogene, and so on and so forth, go volunteer yourself for some genetic knockouts. They should knock out 80% of your genome. You should be fine. But I predict that you're not going to be fine. Um, so, you know, the point is genetic knockouts should, extensive genetic knockouts, and on mammals, they haven't really been done, should tell us if the majority of uh, these genetic sequences are or functional or not. Okay, we haven't done them on humans, they're unethical, but uh, it's, it's one way certainly to uh, determine function. So I would say the fact that a lot of the genome, you know, the so-called areas of junk that uh, act as a mutational buffer, they act in, as redundant elements, I would say that's evidence for, for good design, especially with the environments we exist in. Um, it makes sense to have a lot of redundancy because I mean, we accumulate, the mutation rate's high. You know, we should do a whole debate one day Grayson on genetic entropy, because as you know, we've discussed this before, we accumulate relatively, we, we accumulate roughly 100 new mutations per person per generation. Okay. And most of those are deleterious. De depending on how functional the genome is, that's going to determine how deleterious these mutations are. If the genome's only 10% functional, then it's only going to be about 10 mutations that are damaging, deleterious, effectively neutral. If the genome's 80% functional, it'll be about 80. Okay. They've actually done uh, mathematical. Um, they've run mathematical simulations on this using um, Mendel's accountant. And they've determined that even if the genome is only 10% functional, which I would argue it's not, but even if it is, 10 deleterious mutations that are effectively neutral, that just means they're, uh, they're neutral in the sense that selection can't see them. They're subject to genetic drift. They get passed on. They're not removed. But the effectively part, that means they're slightly damaging. So they're not 100% neutral. They're neutral, yes, selection can't see them, but they're effectively neutral, and that means that they're slightly deleterious. And so, you know, those deleterious effects build up um, over time. But anyways, my main point is the 
verdict is still um, uh, basically awaiting further genetic tests. As a creationist, we would predict that the vast majority of the genome is functional and the evolutionists would predict it's, it's mostly junk. The activity is mostly just noise. And, but still keeping all of those, you know, let's say transcription factor binding sites, you know, just keeping them, but they're not really doing anything. To me, it still suggests, at least logically, that it would just clutter up the interior of the cell. Just like over time, your, your closets, your dressers, your car, it's just going to clutter up the system more. And I don't think it takes that much energy for us to just take an hour or two to clean up the car, clean out the closets. And, you know, if natural selection and other uh, evolutionary mechanisms like epigenetic mechanisms can basically take your single celled like ancestor to a multi-celled ancestor, basically take a fish to fisherman, okay? Um, I, it seems laughable to me then to say, but it's, it's too difficult for it to remove, block, or suppress all of this noise and junk. You know, I, I need some real... Uh, empirical evidence to, to back that up essentially. So anyways, we see function after function. Yes. Mutational buffer, uh, the, the so-called junk, uh, DNA areas may maintain 3d structure, uh, regulate histone binding signs, lines. Okay. Long interspersed nuclear elements is what that stands for. Short interspersed nuclear elements. They're involved in stress response, gene regulation, X chromosome inactivation, Introns involved in, you know, uh, cell stress responses allow for, for alternative splicing. ERVs involved in, uh, they have an antiviral uh, function. The way they're structured, your ERVs, you have your uh, LTRs, long terminal repeats on either ends, your gag pole, um, and ENV elements or components, genes of, of the ERV. But it turns out one of their roles to fight off infections or to um, fight tumors is what's called viral mimicry. And they actually require their similarities to exogenous retroviruses. So for example, the LTRs, the GAG, the pole, the ENV, in order to carry out their job. Because a lot of evolutionists will say, why do they resemble, why do they share so much sequence similarity to exogenous retroviruses? And it's like, that's because one or at least two of their functional roles are dependent upon those similarities. They're also involved in um, embryological development where I have a paper here and I probably won't be able to get to it in time, but um, there's a paper here that talks about how if we did not have these endogenous retroviruses, here it is, curves. The H means human. So human endogenous retroviruses play important roles in physiology, fetal development, and human evolution. If the accidental infection of a mammalian ancestor by an exogenous retrovirus, see the endogenous means it's occurring from within. It's within the system, okay? An exogenous retrovirus occurs from outside. Think of an HIV virus, how it can infect you from outside. If that HIV virus, which is an exogenous retrovirus, let's just say hypothetically were to infect your germ cell lines and they were passed on, well, they would now be um, endogenized essentially. It would be an endogenous retrovirus because now every single one of your cells have them. And then over time, the evolutionary model basically says that these can become fixed in the genome and evolutionary mechanisms will uh, suppress the harmful effects of these uh, ERVs. And then, uh, you know, they can be co-opted for function, so on and so forth. Uh, Grayson understands what I'm saying. So here's the last thing I want to say. The placenta and mammals that produce it, including humans, would have never existed. What that means is I like to exist. Grayson likes to exist. You guys in the audience, I hope, like to exist. Without these ERV elements, we couldn't exist. We wouldn't exist. I mean, that's essential. That's beneficial. And his last point here on the bottleneck, 
my main problem with the bottleneck, and I'd, I'd love for Grayson, you take your time in your next response to address this. If there really was a bottleneck, okay, you had this heterozygous population of humans that get reduced to between 10 and 30,000. Okay, there's varying numbers, varying opinions. Well, what that means is to reduce the necessary levels of genetic diversity to where we are today, low variation, you, it wouldn't be a one or two generation bottleneck. It would be a multi-generational bottleneck. It would at least, it'd be thousands of years of what? Inbreeding. Inbreeding is damaging. It results in disease. What inbreeding does, guys, is it reveals the hidden reservoir of genetic mistakes. They come to the forefront and they lead to accelerated genetic degeneration. And so you're telling me that we have this population of, let's say, 10,000 humans for thousands of years inbreeding, manifesting all of these re recessive deleterious mutations. This, this would drive them to extinction rather than have them, what, spread out into all parts of the globe, seizing dominion over the planet. So my basic point is, even if this bottleneck were to able, were able to reduce genetic diversity in the Y chromosome, mitochondrial DNA, and just the autosomal DNA in general, I would argue that this, this bottleneck, because it lasts so long, it would be detrimental. It would actually drive that population to extinction. It would lead to a lot of disease. And therefore, I would argue, again, that it's not feasible. You know, it's more of a story. And it's also ad hoc because the evolutionary community sequenced the human genome and said, wow, we have low genetic variation. That's surprising. Well, maybe there is a bottleneck. So to me, it's ad hoc. It's after the fact. It's a, you know, it's a rescue device. And, and Grayson might disagree. But even that rescue device, I find doesn't work. It's not feasible because, again, it would drive that population to extinction. So I said a lot there. And I appreciate uh, the clarification that you gave me on those questions, Grayson. So go ahead. Take as much time as you need. And um, the floor is yours. Okay, so maybe I can work backwards and address the, the bottleneck stuff uh, first. So there's actually, we have done studies, obviously not with humans, but I believe we've done them with uh, Drosophila, like fruit flies and uh, other model species where we've induced um, like small populations, inbred species, bottlenecks, and then we've allowed them to expand again. And, and we actually see... Um, that for a few generations, you do see these uh, harmful effects. And then over time, as you start getting a bigger population, uh, you, you, these start to get weaned out by purifying selection. Um, so we have actually seen this uh, exact kind of scenario modeled. Um, and we've seen uh, populations bounce back from being highly inbred in small populations. Um, so if the resources are right, um, if the population grows because, for instance, uh, the climactic con conditions change um, and more resources become available, your population gets bigger, you can actually you can definitely bounce back from being like highly inbred. It doesn't lead to the extinction of species. Um, and we've tested this empirically in the lab. Um, now, uh, I guess that kind of leads into the uh, genetic entropy that you had brought up about um, these um, like slightly deleterious mutations adding up over time to um, become harmful. And um, it, that can happen. I mean, it's um, there, it's called uh, Muller's ratchet, I think is, is, is similar, but um, it, what we find is that um, all organisms exist in what's called mutation selection balance. 
So we're always just right at that threshold where we've accumulated all of these slightly deleterious mutations, like you said, about 100 per generation for humans. And if we acquire uh, more that become harmful, then we start to phenotypically express um, you know, the, the reduced fitness and that gets culled from the population from natural selection, purifying selection. Um, so we are always in this balance where a, whenever a subset of the population passes that threshold where all of like their their mutation load uh, becomes uh, like phenotypically relevant and their uh, fitness is reduced, then we observe that they're cold from the population and that populations are always hanging around this mutation selection balance threshold. Um, so that's exactly what we observe in the population. But we don't observe this ever getting out of control. Um, they stay within balance. Nature likes to maintain equilibriums. Um, so you never really like uh, creationists will say that everyone passes that threshold at the same time, but that's just not how it works. Uh, mutation load naturally varies from individual to individual in a population. Um, so somebody's mutation load is going to be a lot higher than somebody else's. So they're probably their lineage is going to pass over that threshold sooner and they'll be pure, like they'll be a cult from the population just because they won't make it because their fitness is impaired. Um, so that is kind of like a, in general, what we observe in, in why genetic entropy doesn't work. And then um, you're saying that you kind of are not buying this argument that it's too difficult for evolution to call a lot of this like junk DNA or this spurious transcription. But there's a lot of things that it's too difficult for evolution um, to handle. Um, so, for instance, uh, you really do not see many changes in the um, like in the transcription process or you see things that are highly conserved across all species like um, the codon pairs responding, like corresponding to certain amino acids. That's highly conserved. Evolution is pretty hard pressed to change that. It's very, very difficult for something within the frame of evolution to change that because if you change that, you affect so much down the line that your organism is just going to die. Um, and so that is very likely uh, the case for like this spurious like transcription. I mean, if you tried to address it using an evolutionary molecular mechanism, you're probably going to have runaway disastrous results that are going to result in death. Uh, it's going to affect too much in the genome um, and it's going to impair function to such a degree um, that it is too difficult for evolution to address. Uh, the, the solutions cause more problems than the original problem is how I would summarize it. Um, and then I actually, I agree with pretty much all the functions that you laid out for junk uh, DNA introns and ERVs. I mean, this is, um, I mean, this is real science. I mean, these things do have functions. It's not that, um, you know, junk DNA is not a very good term. Um, I wish that, you know, we didn't have that term, but um, really what should be described as uh, non-constrained DNA. So like I said um, earlier, um, this stuff can have function outside of its genetic sequence. All that matters for um, like the context of this discussion is whether or not its genetic sequence is functional. If, if its function doesn't depend on what its gene sequence is at all, then that part of the genome would be junk. Uh, for it would fit the what we would be calling junk DNA in an evolutionary sense, uh, meaning it's free to mutate. However, it's not going to impair its function. 
Um, so yes, it can have function outside of gene sequence. Um, and it would still be labeled as junk DNA. I mean, junk DNA does have uh, the functions that you brought up. Um, now, in this conversation of junk DNA and introns and ERVs, I really think the key thing that we have to be asking is fractions. What fraction of ERVs are demonstrating this function? What fraction of ERVs are relevant for uh, fetal development? What fraction of ERVs are, uh, are performing viral mimicry? And we can see that these are very, very tiny fractions of the overall ERVs. Like it's like, I think one ERV that's doing fetal development, uh, that's Synectin. And your argument for why you have the, gal, uh, the gag, pole, and long terminal repeat sequences that define this as an ERV, well, yeah, that makes sense when you're talking about viral mimicry ERVs, but it doesn't make sense when you're talking about fetal development ERVs. There's no reason why the genes for Synectin should have gag, pole, and LTR um, because it's not doing viral mimicry. Uh, and Synectin could just be a regular gene. It doesn't have to have the uh, like the ERV structure for its function, right? Um, so, and then the genes that are uh, like the, the ERVs that are performing viral mimicry, um, some of those are for viruses that, you know, don't even exist anymore, or some of them are too degraded to act as viral mimics anymore. Um, th this is overall, when you look at all the ERVs, there's a lot of ERVs in the genome, it's something like 8% of the genome is ERVs or something. And the proportion of ERVs that have these functions is very, very small um, for all the kinds of functions that you were talking about. Uh, and it's the same with like junk DNA with pseudogenes. I mean, if you're trying, if you're looking at this as a fraction of the total, it's always a very, very small amount. And for the creationist argument, you need a large proportion of these elements to be functional, which is just something that we don't see. Uh, I know that a lot of the times you, you might hear, you know, oh, we're discovering every day that there are new functions in these things. We're finding new functions all the time and the trend is going towards 100%, but that's just not true. I mean, yes, it's true that we do find new functions for certain parts, but there's a diminishing return and we're not approaching anywhere near 100 percent uh functionality um this is not what we're observing this is not the trend i mean the, the the trend is pretty consistently that a small proportion of these ervs of the junk dna of pseudogenes of transposons of introns a small proportion of the total has been demonstrated to have function um, so if we keep the fractions in mind, I think that, you know, this becomes a lot more clear. Um, so Donnie, are you, are you still there? Are you in the bathroom or? Nope, I'm here. I'm here. So, okay. If you're good, um, those are some good points. Um, if you want, we can the... answer some, some questions or something from the audience. I know that the time is kind of getting up there. I don't know if you've right. been taking down questions at all. I did. So I, I managed to get 10 questions uh, from the audience. Haven't really read through them. Just quickly uh, saved them as we were kind of uh, debating here. Um, what I'm going to I'm going to save a lot of this for like more of a formal debate that we're going to have in the future. But in terms of a response, instead of me giving a long winded response, 
let me just ask you a couple questions on this um, and just to kind of understand better where you're coming from. Um, okay, so I'll start from the end. And I definitely want to discuss all this. Some of it, just for sake of time, we're going to save for future discussions. Hopefully we have many. So you would say that, yes, we're finding more functions, but the trend is not genome-wide functionality. It's essentially the gap is getting smaller and smaller. So we find more and more functions, but it's basically contained within that small region of the genome between 10 and 20% with still 80% junk, essentially, or non-functional if you don't like the junk term. Would you say that's accurate? Um. Yeah, largely. Like, if say we found a hundred functions in one year, and then we found fifty functions the next, and ten in the next year, and then two in the next year. Like, we're getting a diminishing return. It's not like right, we're so the gap's getting smaller and smaller, yes. kind of thing. Okay. Um, I know you read my book, Special Creation, so I do appreciate that. And um, I, I cite a paper in it that I find interesting. I'd be curious as your thoughts, real quick, and then maybe at a later date we can. Um, discuss it in more detail, but it has to do with the um, transcription binding sites. And essentially that if, if they were um, just kind of haphazardly or just randomly binding to places within the genome and nothing more than kind of just noise sticking around because it would be more, it would require more energy and effort to remove them. And so, you know, they're basically just there, but not in any real beneficial function. It talks about how um, if that were the case, there wouldn't be enough transcription factors available to actually do the binding that is needed for these, um, these factors, these transcription factors to properly function. And therefore the conclusion is, and there's a secular paper that talks about this, I believe is in 2016, that these sites are actually more than just noise, more than just spurious. They basically say they're guiding the evolution of animals, but that's kind of, you know, evolutionary lingo for you know, functional, beneficial in a sense. Do you have any thoughts on that, Grayson? Um, well, I'd have to read the specific paper. It does really sound interesting, though. I do want to read it for next time. But my initial thoughts would just be that, um, yeah, we know that transcription uh, binding sites are preferentially selected by transcriptase. Um, so it would depend on how they're setting up their model, um, because I don't think that you would just be able to say, okay, there's an equal chance that transcriptase can bind anywhere in the genome, because we know that there are to a degree chaperoned to certain areas from like regulatory factors and different enzymes, and that they do have uh, preferential binding sites to certain sequences. So we know that that's the case. So I would have to see how they constructed their model to see if, how it makes sense. Um, but yeah, without reading the paper, I, I couldn't really go too much more than that. That's just my initial thoughts. Oh, that, that's, that's completely fine. I believe this is one of the papers, but I, I know I, I cite a lot of papers in the book. So I'll, I'll just put this one forth at least. And, uh, you know, you have the book, you can look it up. So this one here about uh, transcription factor, uh, factor binding is, is not noise. Basically it has to do with in interference where it would not only, um, clutter up the cell, it would, it would prevent the, the functional transcription factor binding sites that are actually doing a job that are not just noise. And then let me know if this makes sense. It would actually hinder, it would interfere 
you know, the, the, those those sites that are just noise would interfere with the um, required functions of the actual ones that are not just noise. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Does that make sense yeah, to you? I, I, I totally agree that that makes sense. And it's, it's sort of the same thing that you were uh, talking about with the energetic, the energetic cost, because that energetic cost is obviously coming to be coming from the transcription. So you not just have the energetic cost, but you have the resource cost of using these transcriptases. Um, if they're transcribing everywhere randomly with no preference, um, then yeah, that would be a problem. So I, I don't, I, in that little um, segment that you had, yeah, um, right yeah just it, obviously that um, weak binding sites are preferentially avoided. I think that, that makes intuitive sense. I wouldn't argue differently. Um, but that's not going to say that you're not going to have any activity on those weak binding sites. I mean, these, this is just how enzymes and, and biochemical systems function. I mean, there's going to be some level of spurious activity at that level. So I think, I mean, I, I really do want to read this paper now to see how they're constructing their model that saying that you would run out of um, transcriptase available. But I think that just having, I mean, you can have the preferential, uh, binding to certain areas of the genome for transcriptase and i think that you would still have spurious binding even in those instances um so yeah i would just have to see how they're constructing their their model okay i appreciate that so i'm just going to put a star around there and we'll save that for further discussion in the in our next one next debate so the next question i want to ask you about is is uh selection threshold so um and correct me if i'm wrong and reiterate a couple points if you'd like to um so you would agree that the mutation rate in humans, which applies generally to all mammals, is high. But there is a, a selection threshold where if enough deleterious mutations accumulate that go unnoticed, once they accumulate to a certain point, they become noticed by natural selection. And, and there's a counterbalancing effect. There's a threshold where it's almost like a mutation count mechanism and therefore the, the most... Um, degenerate i guess you could say species that that have accumulated that they're removed and therefore it keeps species moving along um healthy without any kind of genetic degeneration population-wide kind of thing can you reiterate uh, your points on that and yeah um okay go ahead yeah so you you sort of have it right there where yes you, you do see um like a buildup of these slightly deleterious mutations that's described as the mutation load of a species. And the mutation load varies from individual to individual. So not everyone is at the same mutation load, but they're all sort of around a, a certain range of mutation loads. So once you get a mutation load that's past this threshold, then all of a sudden it does become noticeable to natural selection because you've started to impact fitness. And the not every member of the species crosses that threshold at the same time. And so once individuals cross that threshold, then purifying selection kicks in. And it kind of the main effect of this is that it, it, it maintains the population near that threshold to where you always have some level of the population that's past it and that is being um, selected against but you have a majority of that population distributed somewhere near that threshold, either closer or further away. So that's the mutation selection balance that we observe in nature. 
Um, and I think you can demonstrate that mutation load is pretty constant over generations. So it's not something that just keeps getting more and more and more out of control. Like you can look at uh, like bacteria or E. coli or something. You can measure like natural populations over time because they have a very um, like high generation rate. Um, and you can go and measure the mutation load one day and then you can come back a few months later or years later and measure the mutation load and it's going to be around the same. So it's not spiraling out of control. Um, and I one last thing is that I would not say that you could use human uh, mutation rates um, or like human mutation load or, or you, you couldn't use humans to generalize for other mammals because um, there's such a relaxed selection on humans because of our advanced medical technology um, that it, it's sort of, you know, you can't really generalize it to animals that are living in the wild. It, because there's relaxed selection? Yeah, relaxed selection. And you could actually see, actually, um, it, so if Michael Lynch in that paper, he talks about how um, what he's observing correlates with the degree of development and medical technology of the population. Right. So it's not across the whole human race that his results are. It's only within developed, uh, technologically advanced communities that his results apply. And he mentions that in his paper. Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, so there's within a population, they're not all at the same uh, fitness. They're, they're, it's not like an equal genetic load. There's fitness variation, essentially, is, is what you're saying at the beginning there, right? Yep. And okay, so and they would all contain relatively the same, but with a varying degree of mutational loads. And so eventually, the threshold is basically fitness eventually gets hit negatively. And those certain groups are removed, because they're not all hitting that load at the same time. And therefore, um, there's essentially a maintenance of, of the population near this threshold where there's never a, uh, an all out extinction. It's just those groups that accumulate the most mutations, basically, they're removed and it keeps a balance. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's mutation selection balance in a nutshell. You nailed it. Okay. Okay. So I guess and, and um, I appreciate you describing the Michael Lynch paper here, the human germline mutation rate. So here, here's the points that I want to make, and I'd love to do a full debate on this. Um, and it's the fact that it's the effectively neutral mutations that are the most worrisome. Okay. Because your, your most deleterious, your most damaging, your most disease causing mutations, they are going to be noticeable to the point where they're going to be removed Okay, you know, a single point mutation can result in a disease that kills somebody. There's no reproduction there, right? Natural selection is basically differential reproduction. Who's passing on their genes the most? If you're not reproducing, you're not passing on your genes, and that's not a good thing, okay, evolutionary speaking. So um, basically, your most deleterious, your most damaging mutations, they'll be seen, they'll be removed by natural selection. Your best beneficial mutations, okay, and I believe the Lenski experiment demonstrated that, that your uh, best beneficial mutations are about one in a million. Those pop up, you know, they can be manifested, but it's the nearly neutral ones, the effectively neutral ones, those are the ones that we worry about the most because they go on unnoticed, they go on unchecked, 
And so regardless of this, if it's a wild species like zebras or lions or humans that have relaxed selection, we take care of the young. We have these medical, we have these advancements in medical technologies, right? Where in the wild, if you get a big mutation, right? A zebra is born with uh, one leg shorter than the rest. <laughs> okay. Well, that zebra is probably going to be dinner, right? For the, for the lion. So that zebra is not passing on its genes. But let's say, for example, uh, a human being is born with a shorter leg. I'm just using a random example. Well, we're going to, we take care of each other. That, that's not going, to, although it's a bad mutation, it is big, it's noticeable, it can be seen. The person with that mutation can pass on their, their genetics. You know, although it, it's a decrease, it, one could say it, it's a decrease because it's a deleterious mutation. It's, it's not necessarily going to prevent reproduction. It's all about reproduction. Okay. So yeah, the big mutations, they matter. The big mutations in human beings, you know what, uh, that doesn't necessarily kill or stop reproduction. But in the wild, those big mutations are almost guaranteed to stop reproduction. Okay. Because it's, it's, it's survival of the fittest. I mean, it is, um, it, it's a harsh world in the wild. Okay. But the effectively neutral mutations, I would argue, are still the same. They're unnoticeable in the wild. They're unnoticeable in humans. So the relaxed selection, I would argue, is most um, seen or effective in the big mutations. So you're effectively neutral. They're still going to build up. Now, here's where your argument comes into play, and I appreciate it. Okay, there is some logic behind it where these these mutations basically build up. Okay, and eventually they build up enough where they are effectively neutral. They're not seen, but they build up enough where now fitness is being affected and now selection can see because there's been such a buildup and bam, it, it removes uh, that group from the equation, keeping the species healthy and balanced. My problem with this is, and I'll use this illustration and then I'll let you respond. And then I think we'll just go into some audience questions. We'll give you the last word here because uh, I respect your time. Okay, my problem, let's take humans in general. Okay, we're all multiply mutant. There's fitness variation. Nobody's um, arguing that against that. So there's fitness variation. Everybody's multiply mutant. We've all inherited 100 new mutations per person per generation. We, we all technically have 100 more mutations than our grandparents, than our parents, and so on and so forth. Okay, so let's just say we were to remove 50% of the worst mutants on the planet, the ones that have the highest genetic load. Okay, so we remove them. There's about seven billion people on the planet. Let's say seven to eight billion. So now we're left with three and a half billion people. We, we could pick any, we can pick zebras, lions, pick any animal. We'll, we'll stick with humans though. Well, now we're left with three to 4 billion people that are still more mutant than the generation before it. So even though we just invoked intense, intense selection, okay, yet we still have a population though that is multiply mutant. They still have more mutations than, than the previous generation. So my main point is even with this selection threshold, even with these mechanisms like mutation count mechanisms, synergistic epistasis, uh, truncation selection, it can only ever slow down the degeneration process because you're still always going to have generations that are more mutant because of the effectively neutral mutations. So yes, there's relaxed selection, there's fitness variation, um, 
actually the, the the one rare beneficial mutation that basically pops up every you know million generations those actually turn out on a genotypic level when you study them and not just look at the phenotype they appear to be due to um reduction reductive evolution where you have broken genes broken like sickle cell anemia for example there's a positive effect you have sickle cell anemia you're resistant to malaria so you're not going to die from the malaria disease but but i mean sickle cell anemia it's still a bad disease and it's due to a deformed hemoglobin protein it's due to a reduction in uh, it's functionally compromising i think is the best way to put it so i don't find uh, beneficial mutations to be helpful and so here's the last thing I want to say to reiterate. I understand what you're saying. And, um, but I still don't think it's going to help the case for evolution because you're still always going to have, even with intense, intense selection, you're still always going to have generations that, that are more mutant and it can't be stopped. I mean, if you were to remove every single, you know, whatever the population is, Population X, zebras, remove them all because they're all multiply mutant. Well, th there's a limit to selection because now that's extinction. <laughs> that's not good, right? So there is a limit. And even within that limit or even within intense selection, you're still going to have deleterious mutations that have accumulated. And over time, um, species are still going to basically descend into genetic sickness. And this puts shelf lives on genomes. So this goes all the way back to your initial opening statement where we look to the fossil record, which are supposed to be reflective of hundreds of millions of years. But I would say a lot of these organisms that have basically not changed at all, like your horseshoe crab, that I think exists within 300 to 500 million years of, of rock. For the audience, like I saw some people saying, oh, he believes in that. No, I'm just saying for the evolutionary timescale. Okay. They're, they're saying that, you know, the, the Willemi pine, you know, examples of um, stasis, basically. Coelacanth, horseshoe crab, there's been very little, there has been some variation, yes, but very little change. But wait a minute, if, if deleterious mutations put shelf lives on genomes, well, that means if, if species cannot persist for millions of years into the future, they could not have persisted for millions of years into the past. Okay, so I again, I, I appreciate you bringing up, you know, selection threshold, fitness variation, and uh, basically that there's different forms of what's called mutation count mechanism. And again, I just, I, I, I don't find that, that they are the, the resolution and they've looked at these in numerical simulations again, and they've for sake of argument, they said, you know what, let's just, let's just enter into the equation. Most of the genomes junk, super beneficial mutations, you know, you name it. And it's always degeneration. Although like what you're saying, it could slow it down. But my question is, how do you stop it? And what I want to do is uh, now give you the last word, uh, Grayson, because I've really appreciated this discussion. I really enjoyed the technical nature of it. <laughs> I can't believe we made it to two hours. So uh, it's been good. It's been good. Take the final word, address whatever you want. And then uh, I look forward to a future discussion debate on this. Okay. Yeah, cool. So a lot of what you're talking about with like genetic entropy, which is not really a term that comes up in science. Uh, it's coined by uh, Sanford, who is the one that uses those mathematical models like Mendel's accountant. Um, if you try to look for Mendel's accountant, um, you can't really find um, the parameters for the model that he's using. So it's hard for me to talk about the models, but He's the only one using Mendel's accountant. If you search Mendel's accountant, you're going to find Sanford's work. You're going to find like creationists. You're not going to find like this is not a mathematical model that's used in population genetics. This is something that Sanford has created. Um, so it's hard for me to 
touch on those mathematical models, but um, a more uh, term that you'll come across in the scientific world is Muller's ratchet, which is kind of what you're talking about with the buildup of deleterious mutations. What's the mechanism to get rid of these? Um, and Muller's ratchet is the hypothesis that this will cause uh, an organism to go extinct. And we've tried to initiate Muller's ratchet. Uh, we've tried in the lab, we've tried to hypermutate a population, cause a bunch of deleterious mutations, and try to drive them extinct. And it just doesn't happen. Um, there's all kinds of various mechanisms that can actually uh, get rid of these deleterious mutations. The first one that I'll point to, um, and is the one that is relevant in Muller's ratchet, is that Muller's ratchet only really is applicable to asexual reproduction. Um, when you have sexual reproduction, that pretty strongly counteracts any of counteracts any of these effects. So, say you know the husband has 100 random mutations, the wife has 100 random mutations. The chance that they have the same 100 random mutations is very, very slim, right? And they're going whenever they reproduce to have a kid, they're going to get, you know, 50% of this DNA, 50% of that DNA, you're going to lose a lot of those uh, slightly deleterious mutations just right there. So no selection even happening, just sex is a purifying uh, mechanism to get rid of a lot of these deleterious mutations. So this is mainly a problem that was postulated in asexual bacteria. But even in those instances, we cannot force Muller's ratchet. I mean, we have not been able to demonstrate it empirically in a lab. Like I was saying earlier, if you go to like a bacteria and you measure its mutation load in one generation, and then you go further to a future generation months later, if this were true, we would expect to see a higher mutational load. But what we see is that it maintains this mutation selection balance at this threshold. The mutation load does not vary that much um, as you pass through different generations um, because most of these mutations are effectively neutral. And I know that um, you use effectively neutral, the same as slightly deleterious, but there is a distinguishing um, factor there. I know that you might have a source that's saying in reality, all effectively neutral mutations are slightly deleterious, but there's definitely a question of degree there. Like it can be something as minimal as saying, oh, well, if you change out an A with a T, even though that doesn't impact the function and it's effectively neutral, it costs more energy to produce an A than it produces a T. So really this is, very, 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 very slightly deleterious. Like it, it can be so nitpicky that it's it's really not that relevant. Like there are effectively neutral mutations um, and they don't build up to become more deleterious over time. Um, this is something that we don't really observe um, happening in nature whenever we test it and we measure mutation loads and how they vary over time. We observe that they are at this homeostasis. And I think we see most things in nature maintain equilibriums like this. Um, I'm trying to recall the other things that you brought up, um, but I think maybe we'll just leave it at there um, unless you think that I didn't address something that you said that you think should be addressed. No, that's good. That's good. I really appreciate this. Lots of compliments, good feedback in the chat. 
I've got a lot of notes here and therefore uh, lots to discuss and lots to debate in the future, especially when it comes to uh, this question that we've essentially engaged for two hours, universal or separate ancestry and uh, genetic entropy, especially. So Grace and I appreciate the back and forth on so many good topics, junk DNA, molecular clocks, Y chromosome, dissimilarity, uh, genetic entropy. And uh, this was a good pre-debate for the audience because uh, there's many more to come with Grayson, including, and I just got uh, full confirmation. So Grayson and Kent will, uh, will be debating on uh, Wednesday. So Wednesday, which means we've got a busy week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all shows. And actually, no, now Thursday, Friday. So basically shows all week, which is fine. And I'm looking forward to uh, the debates between uh, Kent and Grayson. So yeah, I'm okay. looking forward to asking him all about kinds. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'm very curious about. I don't know if following the biblical definition of kind, if Kent and myself would be considered the same kind. Hey, say that last part again. I'm, so, I'm guilty of reading a question that. Yeah, I like I said, I don't think that if you use the biblical definition of kind, that myself and Kent would be the same kind. Considering, um, no matter how hard we try, Kent and I cannot bring forth. I, I get what you're saying. My, my just to throw it out there, my definition of a kind would be groups of organisms that descend or could be traced back to the same ancestral gene pool. So that's my definition of kinds, which means you and I will have an interesting discussion on that too. Um, okay, let's, I think that was comprehensive for sure. Um, and I think we engaged most of the points brought up. So, okay, let's get right into these questions. Guys, I was in the middle of uh, discussing these technical topics with Grayson. So I just starred every question that, that I was tagged in. I didn't necessarily read them. So Grayson, we're gonna work through them together, okay? So first question that came in, Centurion. Um, for your guest, do you believe in the idea of monophily in deep time? Why don't we see it today? Uh, yeah, so the law of monophily is uh, pretty demonstrable and observable. I would 100% agree with it. Um, I don't know what they're talking about, why we don't see it today. We absolutely see it today. Uh, mammals always produce mammals. Um, apes produce apes. I'm not aware of any exceptions to the law of monophily, either in deep time or today. So that'd be, I don't agree with the premise of his question. Appreciate it. Grayson, um, what, what we do on this channel, whoever the question is for gets the last word. So I'll give my thoughts. You get the last word. So law of monophily is basically we can never outgrow our ancestry. Okay. So dogs will always produce dogs. Mammals will always produce mammals. Think of it in terms of taxonomy, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. So mammals are always going to produce mammals. Eukaryotes are always going to produce eukaryotes. Animals are always going to produce animals. Okay. Now, the difference, though, is Grayson's model would basically take this back to, you know, single-celled like ancestors billions of years ago. Okay. And they would also say that, you know, a whale and a pine tree, they're both eukaryotes. And eukaryotes are never going to stop producing eukaryotes. And therefore... Um, it, it applies basically to that law. So what I would say, and then Grayson, you, you get the last word, is the law of monophily, I would argue, is more consistent with the creation model where God, so the design diversity model, the fancy way of saying it, created heterozygosity, where God creates original created kinds, Adam and Eve, front loads them with pre-existing uh, heterozygosity. This applies universally across kinds. And so your original humans, 
your original felids, your original canids, your original whatever it is, okay? They, from that point of creation, they can diversify, they can adapt, but they're always going to stay within that type, within that sort, within that kind. They're never going to outgrow basically that ancestry. That's why my definition of kind is different than some other creationists, because I would define it as, again, groups of organisms that can be traced back to a common ancestral gene pool. And that original gene pool at creation, let's say for humans, right, Adam and Eve, all humans today would descend back to Adam and Eve. That would include Neanderthals. That would include, you know, your hobbit, Floresiensis, Naledi, Erectus, so on and so forth. Basically, your, your side branches on the human line, I would say they could all be grouped together in, in the same kind. And they are the same kind because they can be traced back to that same ancestral uh, gene pool. So, okay, go ahead, Grayson, have the final word. Uh, yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily use the law of monophyly as like a discriminating line of evidence for creation and evolution. Mm -hmm. um, but in the point of what Donnie was talking about, I would just think like, what is preventing mammals from being a kind? I think that they fit all the definitions. Um, and we see variations within mammals, uh, like a whale and a mouse, but they're all still mammals. So I don't think that Donnie would agree that mammals is a created kind. Right? There's not like an ancestral mammal species or like in his uh, model that then differentiated into all the mammals that we see today. But I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the case. Like within within the creation model, I don't see any argument that applies to the kinds of kinds like dogs or felids or whatever kinds they want to talk about that doesn't also apply to like mammals as a kind. So that's more along what I would like to see. And, and feel free to respond to that, Donnie, if you want. I mean, that's kind of what I was going to ask Kent anyway. Yeah, I, I would say hypothetically, given my definition for me to be consistent, if we could trace the group we call mammals, if we could trace all mammals, okay, from whales to dogs to cats to humans to chimpanzees, if we could trace that entire group to a common ancestral gene pool, then by definition, they'd be the same kind. The question is within that group, mammals, that would include whales and humans. If there's certain groups that we can trace back to a common ancestral gene pool that we can't have others included within that, then they would by definition be different kinds. How would we uh, determine that? I would determine that through what's called discontinuities. We can look at discontinuities in the fossil record simply by looking, I don't think it's as strong or as high quality or high confidence, but we can look at certain traits. You know, there's been what's called baromenological uh, studies on uh, like dinosauria groups, the synapsids, where they've discovered uh, discontinuities and continuities within that group. And so they take the, the groups that have discontinuities within them, basically, and they say, okay, within this group, this is a kind, this is a kind. But I think today we can do that with genetics. So I don't know if, if that kind of answers your question in a nutshell, but again, Grayson, you have the final word, then we'll move on here. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it sort of answers it, but I would just need to, I don't necessarily know what you mean by discontinuities. And I would need to kind of see like maybe an illustration of that within mammals to sort of. If I, if I could to make it real easy, 
basically a discontinuity in genetics today would be the Y chromosome between humans and chimpanzees. And we've discussed that. So basically if your arguments work, then I would say that's a discontinuity that is consistent with universal ancestry. So now it's not good. It's, it's not a valid discontinuity, right? We could also see discontinuities in morphology and anatomy with the fossil record, but that's one example. So I would say that's a discontinuity, but you would agree, but you would, you would argue as you have that there's reasons, there's val valid reasons for that discontinuity, right? Yeah. And so I would just point to the fact that the, the chimp Y chromosome is also just as different from the other apes as it is for humans. So it's like species specific. So that would mean that the, by the definitions of kinds that chimps would have to be their own separate kind apart from the other apes and monkeys. So uh, we can go on to the next question if you, if you want from there. Let me say this, because this is really interesting and that's a good point you brought up. That could mean one of two things, the discontinuities or you know the differences in genetic variation in this one DNA compartment just means that it's it's an, it's basically a norm it's not a problem for all the great apes being related going back to a common ancestor or we're looking at separate created kinds even within the great apes so the evolutionist taxonomists would say humans are non-human great apes the great apes are great apes right um and we'd all be primates but that could mean humans of their own kind descend their from their own ancestral gene pool, chimpanzees and bonobos. I'd have to look at how, do you know offhand how similar the bonobo and chimpanzee Y chromosome is? I was just about to say, thank you for saying bonobos. When I mentioned earlier, the other ape species that does sperm competition, I misspoke. I said gibbons. I meant to say bonobos. Okay. Um, so yes, bonobos have their own, they, they, they're under sperm competition, just like chimps. Right. And their Y chromosomes are also like, the most heterozygous, hetero, like the most different that we see out of the apes. And they're very different from chimps as well. So um, they, they kind of, what we see in chimps, we also see in bonobos, uh, the same sexual characteristics and Y chromosome characteristics. So what you said there, that could falsify my model. So if we look, let's say the next discussion, let's get the actual diagram up. Let's get the numbers. Let's see how different the bonobo the chimpanzee and the human Y chromosome is? Because I would predict that the chimpanzees and bonobos are one kind they descend from a, an arc archetype. I would say gorillas are their own kind, orangutan its own kind. So I would say within that family, we have humans, we have uh, bonobos and chimpanzees, the same group, gorillas and orangutans. And so, yeah, if there's a big enough difference within bonobos and chimpanzees, that it explains the discontinuity between human and chimpanzee Y chromosome, then I would say that, you know, it, it at least, it probably becomes an agnostic line of evidence. From what I've seen, yes, bonobo and chimpanzee Y chromosome is different, but still not nearly as different as the human and chimpanzee is. And so it's going to, it's going to come down to how different it's going to come down to the, you know, inter and intra variation basically within the Y chromosome. So that's a great point that you brought up. And that would be a good place to start, right? Why, why look at, you know, the most distant organisms on the tree, like whales and pine trees? Let, let's stay as close to home as possible. Let's just look at the great apes. Let's look at the primates. Let's see if they're all related. And then we can kind of work our way back. So, okay, <laughs> we've been on a long time on this question. Go ahead if you wanted a quick final word. 
Um, yeah, I was just going to see if Centurion is in the comments at all. Maybe he's already been commenting the whole time. Maybe he could give an example of like the law of monophyly being broken or like not happening like he's talking about. Maybe we could discuss that. But yeah, yeah, I'm not aware of any except maybe you could make it. You could make an argument for like endosymbiosis, not following the laws of, of monophyly. But that's not necessarily like a evolutionary process. It's a little different. Okay. Appreciate that. I'm going to do a power round for you here. Uh, since they're basically all for you, you're in the hot seat. So Patty Smith, $10 super chat. Thank you so much for G for Grayson. If natural selection is such a key and essential Evo driving force, why don't humans participate in it? Like all other living things, if it is so key, shouldn't humans abandon all morals? Um, so humans do participate in natural selection, but like we kind of touched on earlier, it's relaxed selection because of our medical technology. Um, I don't know of any examples in the animal kingdom where they have advanced medical technology that can, you know, relax their selective pressures. I mean, it's, it's a little bit you know, like we're not living in the natural world anymore. So we don't have the same natural selection as wild animals. Um, the thing about uh, humans abandoning all morals, I, I would just say because that would suck. I mean, I don't want to live in a world where <laughs> nobody's got morals. Um, I don't believe in objective morals, but I still have morals. I'm not, you know, I try to do what I think is good and right. Um, if you want to just say um, a quick reason why, I would say like the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would like done to you. I, I, mean, I think maybe Jesus said something similar or whatever, but it's a it's a pretty spot on approach. So Jesus was definitely right about some things. Okay. Thank you, Grayson. Thank you, Patty Smith. Next question for Grayson from Stephen Tibbetts. Hopefully I said that right there, Stephen. Uh, Grayson, if Evos wrote a book right now, would it still be valid in 100 years? Be fair because creationists are stuck with 2000 plus year old book and science keeps supporting it. <laughs> okay. Well, Maybe we could have a discussion. I don't know how much science supports um, the Bible, but uh, if if evolutionists wrote a book right now, I have no idea how much of it would still be valid in 100 years. I cannot see the future. If I knew exactly the direction and the findings that we were going to find in the scientific process, I could probably make a lot of money, but I can't see the future. So pretty easy to answer that one. All right. Thank you, Grayson and Steven. Next question comes in from Pseudonym, $5 Super Chat. Thank you so much, Pseudonym. Grayson, based on genetics and predictions on why chromosomal changes of a monkey kind, would you say evolution allows any species to escape its morphology? Um, I don't fully understand the rationale behind this question, but I don't think that any species can just escape its morphology um, because typically evolution has to work on what's already there, right? What What is already there is what has to mutate. So you don't, I mean, you're not going to see like totally left hand, like radical changes like we talked about earlier with like the like the codon, like the genetic code is something that's very hard to change because if you change it, you're going to affect way more things down the line and it's going to result in like a catastrophic failure for uh, the organism so you can't just escape morphology i mean you can you know evolution is descent with modification so you have to be modifying your morphology you're not just completely writing new morphologies with from with a blank check you know what i mean so 
Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Pseudonym. Before I get to the next question, I wanted to show you this, Grayson. This is what I'd like us to get into next time. Um, I didn't have enough time to get into it, but I pulled it up earlier for one of the rebuttals. Um, so as you can see here, this is a figure from the, uh, the paper, chimpanzee human Y chromosomes are remarkably divergent in structure and gene content. We were talking about that earlier. So here's one of the, um, the figures in it. And you can basically see all the differences, the similarities. So you can see the chimpanzee Y, right? You can see the size and then you can see the human Y. So you can see that already there's some non-alignable regions, some size differences. And then there's also differences within the gene content. So if we're looking at just the gene content itself, you know, one could say 70% the same. But then once you start considering, you know, the points that don't even align or the points that just don't even have an alignable region because it's different in size, then, you know, are we going to account for those? Should we, should we not? You know, that maybe that's up for debate. But what I'd like to see is this same thing, but bonobos, gorillas, right? Because I, I understand that the human and um, gorilla Y chromosomes are more similar to each other than the human and the, and the chimpanzee. You would say the chimpanzee is the odd man out because of sperm competition. Polygamy. I can't agree with what you just said there, though. Okay. You know, no, I understand. I think that, and go ahead if you want to respond to that. Yeah. I mean, like if you're taking the total sequence of every single base pair in the Y chromosomes of apes, humans are still the most similar to chimpanzees, not gorillas. It's only if you're looking at only like certain things and you're not looking at the whole picture of like the genetic uh, sequence that you would get results like that. Um, so that's why I can't agree with it. It's just when you're looking at the whole picture Every single base pair, humans are the most similar to chimps. Now, what about the parts that, so for example, if you're talking about the base pair, the gene content, so the gene content between humans and chimpanzees, right? And um, there's another figure that, okay, right here. Well, the base pairs is not the same as the gene content, I, I would have to say. Like the base pairs are not just genes. So the non-coding regions, this like, like right, every right. single part of the chromosome is a base pair. Like that's just the structure of DNA. So when you're taking oh. every single base pair into account, genes, non-genes, pseudogenes, every single thing on the chromosome. Right, everything. Right. The, the humans are most similar to the chimps, Y chromosomes. Now, what's your thoughts on me pushing back to that response by saying, okay, when you're looking at everything, okay, everything that basically constitutes the Y chromosome between humans and chimpanzees, well, you can only compare the parts that are there. So I'm saying if it's only roughly half the size, what do you do with, with, with the missing portions of it that you can't compare? Cause it's just, it doesn't exist. Yeah, that would count as portions that are dissimilar. So if you're missing a portion in the chimps that's that's in humans, then that counts towards the differences. Right. Um, so like if you have two uh, pages from a book, but you rip half of one out, they're only going to be 50% similar, even though the portions that are intact are 100% similar. Right. So if you're looking at all of the base pairs, like that accounts for all those differences. Uh, in like the total base pair similarity would account for differences like that. And that would be factored into your result. Okay. So if I were to, yeah, 
uh, that's a good analogy. So if I were to take this piece of paper right here, right? So we got this full piece of paper if I'm on camera and I were to rip it in half. So now we're comparing this, this half to this full paper. So, so we're looking at everything. Everything that makes up these two examples, paper one, paper two, okay? How, how similar are they? Overall? It would only be 50% similar if the okay. one is half the size. And so that's exactly what's happening here. In the little quote that you brought up earlier with the, the 35%, they were saying that 35% cannot be aligned to the other one. So that number is, is, the, is the difference in what you're talking about, that the sequences that are not homologous, um, they cannot be compared one to the other. So that is factored in whenever you're doing the total base pair sequence um, that accounts for those discrepancies. So is it your position that the 70% number is accounting for the size differences? Yes. How sure are you of that? Because I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Well, I mean, the 70% number, as it was in your, uh, like your quote that you were saying, was for the sequences that are alignable, right? So I don't know if that's 70% uh, in the total base pairs. I'm not sure what number is when you're looking at total base well, pairs. For both if of them. I could, if I, I know could, that right? the author of the paper that we're looking up on screen right now says that if you're looking at all the base pairs, humans are still the most similar to chimps. Now, from my understanding, okay, and I'm open to being wrong on this, the 70%, actually, first, let me start with the alignable regions. There can be non-alignable regions even within the portions. Like, so, for example, the, the, we have size differences. That's one thing. But within the, the sequences themselves, okay, because you can see how they have it broken down here, right? Heterochromatic right here is the pink, X-degenerate, X-transposed, uh, ampliconic. Um, you know, you can see, for example, here with heterochromatic DNA, the human Y has way more than the chimpanzee, right? There's only a little bit here, a little bit here. Um, so the, the point is you can have some regions that don't really have an alignable counterpart just within the, the DNA itself. Does that make sense? Like it, it doesn't have to, your size difference is basically, here's the Y on humans. Here's the Y on chimpanzees. So right off the bat, before you start calculating anything, you, you before you compare anything, you know, the X degenerate, the X transpose, the heterochromatic portions, okay? You're already starting at 50%. Yeah, so I it, agree. It can only go lower than that is my point. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I'm saying that if you have the total number of like the base pair sequence, right? Say you have 5,000. I mean, I'm just making up numbers here. They're not right. at least close. But if you have 5,000 base pairs in one and 7,000 base pairs in the other, you're already starting with a 2,000 base pair difference that's factored in right. to the total base pair similarity. So that base pair sequence similarity number factors in the size it factors in the the regions that are alignable or non-alignable um, on all levels i mean just looking at the base pair similarity factors in all of that uh, in the results right but but i'm saying if 
So it has to be more than 70%. It has to be less similar than 70%. Since right off the bat, before you're even comparing anything, you're already looking at a massive difference just in the size of the the Y chromosome. Well, so how, I'm not how, sure if the number is in the paper about what the base pair similarity is. Uh, if it is, uh, we could probably find it for later, but um, right. I'm sure that that number is available. We could probably email the author of the paper and they would probably have that available. Uh, usually yeah. the authors are pretty responsive on email to these things if they don't say it in the yeah, paper, but I'm sure that we could get that. And we could even ask them about if they've looked at bonobos as well um, to sort of get at this future conversation, but right. I, think I, I, I do, I, I do have a separate paper. It's the paper that shows how overall, and I know, I know you disagree with this. So I guess it'd be a debate for another time when you consider overall gene content, architecture, size differences, everything that makes up the Y chromosome, that's where the human Y and the gorilla Y are more similar. But when you only compare certain regions, like let's say you just kind of omit the size differences that's where you might get humans and chimpanzees. Yeah, I'm saying that's just not true, though. Okay. Like, I'm saying when you look at all, everything, the total sequence similarity, it encompasses all those factors. You're not just looking at specific regions. Like, you're not just looking at gene coding regions. You're not just looking at these different, like, um, you know, uh, you know, superficial things like the structure or size. You're looking at the actual sequence, the total sequence, all base pairs and the entire Y chromosome the author of this study says that humans are the most similar to chimpanzees. So I, I think <laughs> see, that we've I don't, this topic uh, like... No, we, but, but let me just say this. I don't see how that can be the case because already you're starting off, before you compare anything, you're starting off and you've got him here. You're starting off with a Y chromosome that already has massive size differences. Yeah, so it's even impressive that that is the case, even including the size differences. That's how similar chimps and humans yeah, but are. If you look at the gorilla Y and the human Y, they're closer in size. So already with the gorilla Y and the human Y, you're, you're starting with less differences even before you compare everything else. Yes, but our genes, are, our genomes are more differentiated in total. I mean, like I'm saying, the author of the study that we're looking at, uh, we can find the quote where she says, um, that the chimps are more similar to humans when you look at all the total genetic base pairs. Um, okay, and and, and so we'll have to we'll, we'll have to look at that. But so the, for the audience' sakes, I know this can be technical, and then uh, you comment on this too, and then we'll move on. My argument is the human and chimpanzee Y chromosome is less similar than seventy percent. There, there's more. Di so where some would say the human and chimpanzee Y is seventy percent the same. I would say no, it's actually more so, you know, between 35 and 50% the same for sake of argument. Would you differ on that? And, and then we'll move on and, and save. When you consider everything I'm saying, when you consider size differences, everything, I would say we're not 70% the same. We're actually more like 35 to 50% the same. If we don't factor in the size differences, then we're 70% the same. That That's my position on it. What do you think about that? Do you disagree with that? And then we'll move on. Um, I would just want to see the the numerical okay. uh, like amount. I'm not gonna like lay out a numerical prediction on the exact percentage right now. But like I said, we can email the author of that paper and ask if she has a percentage 
for the total base pair sequences. And that would be the number we're after in this instance. Okay. Okay. And I appreciate that too. You know, th th this is good. Th this is getting into the weeds. This is getting into the details. This is really testing our models in terms of uh, separate ancestry. So for me on the Y chromosome, for anybody um, wondering, I like discussing this. I've been discussing this for a few years. And I think this is probably the most comprehensive of a discussion I've had on the Y chromosome because typically the evolutionists I debate, they just kind of concede, say they got to look into it. You've looked into it, which is good because for me, if, I've, if I'm shown that, that these differences, Grayson, can be accounted for in the, in the common descent model, then I would make the Y chromosome argument that I use, I would put it into what? The agnostic category. See, right now I have it in the discriminatory category where I, I am arguing that it's a line of evidence that only separate ancestry could, could explain, but I'm open to putting it into the agnostic. Well, and category. that's why I like you better than Kent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kent uses the same arguments. No matter how many times people bring up the law of monophyly, he's still going to say dogs produce dogs. He's not going to ever change his arguments no matter what. So, you know, I'm glad we're having an open honest discussion both of us are open to being proven wrong like i'm open to being proven wrong as well um and moving those categories into agnostic versus discretionary i'm open to that as well so i i would say the victor and actually firstly don't worry you and kent you guys are going to be best buds we're going to have you having a debate trilogy on kinds <laughs> but uh yeah so one thing i'll say is eventually i think the discussion however many rounds we have in general you know, which model, universal or separate ancestry model, has more points in the agnostic category versus the, you know, the versus the discriminatory. Yeah, I should say non-discriminatory versus discriminatory. So, okay, here, let, let me, um, let me see what else we have left. I'm wondering if there's another one for you. Um, one question here from Lorraine. She says, is there evidence for separate ancestry? We've kind of been, that's basically been the whole debate. So, um, what about here's Zach appreciated Zach. He says, this has been a ton of fun. Love the technical discussion. Um, okay. I'm getting tired. So I'll read this one and I'll, I'll give my best answer. We got to wind it down. So pseudonym, thanks for the $10 super chat. Let's work through it together. I need another coffee. <laughs> okay. So given, I guess the term function or not, you seem to agree pseudo genes like stop codons serve a function but can't replicate what's the creationist explanation if shared among primates and humans okay on the spot without pulling up i've got a whole slideshow on pseudogenes there's different kinds of pseudogenes and different kinds of pseudogenes do different things they've discovered that some pseudogenes actually help with the function of its protein coding counterpart and there's been da data suggesting that the similarities between the, the pseudogene basically and its protein coding counterpart are necessary for it to do that job as, as they communicate with each other. OK. And, you know, just in general, pseudogenes are discovering that they're, they're necessary to sustain healthy life processes in the cell. Um, so I, I guess that's the best way, you know, they can't replicate. So, you know, if he's talking about protein synthesis, you know, where you have, uh, you know, DNA to RNA to protein. So transcription, translation, but some products, you only have DNA transcribed into RNA, and then you have a functional RNA product, but it doesn't necessarily, 
get translated into into a protein. That was the the misthinking back in the day where they thought, well, only the genes basically, only the end stage functional protein products are functional. No, they've now determined that a lot of just RNA products are functional. Okay, and a lot of non-coding genes like pseudogenes are also functional. And I think one of their, you know, because the evolution will say, well, why do they look like within the pseudogene? When you look at it, it looks like it's a dysfunctional, as Grayson knows what I'm saying. It looks like it's a dysfunctional protein coding gene. And so basically it's a genetic mistake that's been inherited through descent with modification. So they'll say, you know what, these pseudogenes that are shared between humans and chimpanzees, the reason we share them is because we inherited them from a past common ancestor, okay? And they'll say, see, this pseudogene, it's it's dysfunctional because of XYZ. It's a dis it's a dysfunctional version of this protein coded sequence. But again, I'm just I'm just repeating myself here. So I'll just say it one more time and I'm done. <laughs> so those those um similarities, but those what looks to be like a dysfunctional section of the pseudogene. The research is saying, no, that, that's a necessary component of the pseudogene in order for it to help with its uh, protein coding counterpart function. OK, so go ahead, uh, Grayson, you, you, you can respond to that. Yeah. So like the same thing with ERVs, it's all about fractions, right? What fraction of pseudogenes are demonstrating this epistatic effect where it's it's having a, a beneficial effect on the um, the other genes like are there coding proteins not a hundred percent right this is not something we observe all pseudogenes doing um, this is something we observe some pseudogenes doing and that doesn't mean that we can generalize that activity to all pseudogenes so it's all about fractions uh, the fractions of the total so in this particular instance I think a good example that he might be talking about. His question was a little bit confusing to me. I, I mean, pseudogenes replicate just fine. And they're, they're part of the genome. But uh, he might be talking about vitamin C um, to where uh, humans cannot synthesize their own vitamin C. There is well, not yeah. a gene that's coding for a protein that can synthesize vitamin C. So right there, like the argument that pseudogenes help their, pro their, gene, their protein coding gene equivalent doesn't hold up for vitamin C, for instance, because there is no protein coding equivalent. Both humans and primates cannot synthesize their own vitamin C. So we share this disabled um, uh, gene that used to function in a lot of our, uh, like other sister species, like um, they still have a functioning version of this gene. Um, so that's where I would leave it with that. Okay, so yeah, the last thing I would say, and I should clarify, obviously because of genetic entropy, genetic degeneration, we would have true broken genes, right? I mean, we have thousands of dysfunctional genes just within our own genome, you know, and those dysfunctional genes lead to diseases. And the GULO pseudogene, I would, um, I would argue is probably, I'm gonna say probably because I would recommend the work of Dr. John Sanford and Christopher Roop uh, in contested bones, where I do believe that they lay out a pretty good model suggesting that maybe even the GULO pseudogene is functional. We just don't know what the function is yet, and they they suggest some tests. But, uh, you know, for sake of argument, the GULO pseudogene, because, you know, humans get a lot of vitamin C in our diet, fruits, vegetables, foods, and uh, today, vitamin supplements, right? So, the, the vitamin C pseudogene to not be able to synthesize our own vitamin, 
you know, there would be relaxed selection on that. So, you know, maybe that would be more prone to damage, what's called a mutational hotspot. And so therefore, you know, the, there is a paper by Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins that uh, Grayson and I could examine in a future debate where he gives a number of reasons why uh, a lot of animal species all have broken uh, gulo pseudogenes. So we have independent breakages due to what's called mutational hotspots. Um, kind of like parts of your car are more prone to damage, more prone to rust spots, okay, just because of environment. And so, yeah, I want to say, I would, I would say there are some genes that are legit the result of breakage, dysfunction, degeneration, mutations, and those could be shared. But even those, when you look at the exons, for example, from my understanding between humans and chimpanzees in the gulo pseudogene, they're not exactly the same. Now, the evolutionists would say, well, because it was broken so long ago and then the lineage is split, they would accumulate independent differences, right? So, you know, they have an explanation I, there, but if go I ahead. Can, I know it's not exactly in line with the structure of the, the question in a, yeah, but I just really would like to get in on that. I was going to say that um, the the way that these genes are broken um, in uh, like apes and humans versus in further separated lineages that also have broken vitamin C uh, genes, the gulo gene, um, the way that they're broken in more distant animals, distant according to the evolution prediction, is a different kind of breakage and is less similar than the breakage that we observe in, in chimps and other apes. So that kind of gets back to the question about like the actual way that we're seeing these pseudogenes uh, be broken is there's not really a reason why if they were independently broken in chimpanzees and humans, why they would be as similar as they are. So, yeah. And I appreciate I'll, I'll give you the last word on that because I do have a whole slideshow on Gulo pseudogene and I'd like us to definitely discuss that in the future. So as the last thing that I want to say, I just want to show you this. And I'm going to send you this paper, although I believe you've read this too, but just for the next discussion. So this one's a different paper. This is a newer paper, okay? Dynamic evolution of grade ape Y chromosomes. This is where we're going to find, but we should both read it and get prepped for next discussion. This is where you're going to find um, detailed figures and examples of basically a detailed breakdown of all the different grade ape Y chromosomes. But right here, notice this and, and give me your quick thoughts, final thoughts, then we'll shut it down. So it says, for example, the chimpanzee Y is only half the size of the human Y. Okay. So what I'm so if it if it's only half the size, right off the bat, before you you start comparing anything, right, Grayson, you're starting out 50%, just like the example we were talking about earlier here. If we're comparing these two papers, well, right off the bat, the overall similarity when you consider everything has to be less than 50% because it's half the size, right? So that's basically your minimum. If, if everything else was identical, it'd be 50%. But we know that everything else is not identical. So notice this. And the percentage of gene families shared by these two chromosomes that split roughly 6 million years ago is similar to that shared by human and chicken autosomes. So it's basically saying, you know, this amount of difference is what we expected to find between human and chicken autosomes. That's biparentally inherited DNA. So it's not, don't confuse that audience with the Y chromosome that's uniparentally, okay? So it is saying the autosome. So it's not exactly equivalent, but they are just saying, you know, this was kind of a shock. So then they say, puzzlingly or surprisingly, in terms of shared genes, 
and overall architecture, remember this is what I was saying earlier, Grayson, overall architecture, gene content, size differences. The human Y is more similar to the gorilla Y than to the chimpanzee Y, even though human and chimpanzee have a more recent common ancestor. So what are your thoughts on that, Grayson? Go ahead. No, I agree with everything that they're saying there. Um, I think that in terms of like, if, if we're looking at just genes and overall, overall architecture, uh, it is more similar to gorilla. But my point was, and what the other author's point was, is that when you're looking at the total base pair sequence, so not just genes, um, not just superficial differences in shape or whatever, um, when you're looking at the total base pair sequences, the I assume that this author would agree to, but the other author says that humans and are mo most similar to chimpanzees, not gorillas. Um, and this, when they say only half the size of the human Y, I assume that they're just measuring that spatially in terms of like micrometers, nanometer. Uh, uh, but really, I mean, what we would want to be talking about is in terms of base pair length. So how many base pairs are there? Um, that's what I would be more concerned with because there's all kind of secondary architecture kind of effects that can, can go on in, in uh, DNA folding to create these chromosomes to where I think a much more valuable measure of size would be the total number of base pairs in each chromosome. And then looking at how similar those two base pairs are um, would give the most meaningful measurement result. So that's what I would okay. talk with. Okay, and let me say this. The other paper on the chimpanzee and, and human Y chromosome, that was from either 2000, it was between 2006 and 2008. Oh, it's okay? the same author. Right, but it's the same author? I think so, right? The uh, Chekova, Monica Chekova, in the other paper that you pulled up as well? No, I believe it's Hughes and let me see, or it could, I, I don't think so. Let me go see. The, do the one that we were just we were just on that you said was more recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, are you saying the more recent one is the same author as the uh, original chimpanzee paper? If I'm reading things right, I saw the same name that Monica Chakova or whatever. Did you right exit here. out of the one that you had pulled up? Well, the, I've got them both. So here's the original one. Hughes. Here's all the authors. So Chakova. Oh, could you go to the to the um, yeah the other right screen? Yeah, that one. See Monica the Chikova. same the dynamic evolution of great ape Y chromosomes is the same Monica Chakova name. Okay, so Monica Chakova is here, you're saying? Hughes, where's Monica Chakova here? No, 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 I'm saying it, the, uh, I mean, you, you had pulled up the previous one, right? You had both of them in, in the, uh, on, on the online, right? I mean. Oh, you oh, are you talking about the previous one where we had the figure of the chimpanzee? Yes. And, okay. Isn't that um, the same, Monica? Well, then maybe I pulled up a different, there's several papers on the issue. This one here that I originally showed in my slides, this is this one, why chromosomes are remarkably, so I'm not sure if she had a role in that one. Could be, could be not, but we'll, we'll, we'll double check. But nonetheless, there, there's been more high sequencing tests and data since that original paper. And so... You know, even before that one, they had kind of a, a guess on what the chimpanzee Y would be, and then they got better data. And I'm almost certain that for this one, they now have more uh, data on the gorilla Y. But again, I want to read through all, all these papers again because, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying read through them with an eye for not just gene content, but the actual 
total base pairs for the whole chromosome. And I like how we're getting so in, in depth with uh, Y chromosome. I would really love at some point to do a chromosome two fusion discussion as well, because oh, yeah. that's another yeah, chromosome that we that. could definitely go in depth on. And, <laughs> uh, there could be an interesting conversation there. Yeah, we're going to have a hundred year debate series, every single chromosome. So hey, let me just say this. This is what I think you're saying. And then correct me if I'm wrong. And then, yeah, we will start winding it down. Okay. So I'm kind of making this illustration. These two full papers, if you can see it in the, um, if you can see it in the, the webcam, okay? These two papers are gonna represent human and gorilla. So within it, base pairs are different, okay? But you can see that they're way closer in size. And then we bring in, whoops, and then we bring in the, the chimpanzee. Half the size, much different in architecture, but yet the base pairs, or you, know, you could say the uh, chromosomal content, is more similar. Notice how this one, which is half the size, is more similar to um, is more similar to this one, which is the human, with the grill of the middle. So my point is, even if the um, similarities within, not considering size differences, architecture, is more similar with humans overall, just because of the size itself, you're still going to have the human and gorilla more similar than the human and the chimpanzee when you consider everything size differences architecture base pairs you know whatever and i have a feeling you're going to disagree with that but what do you think about that yeah you're right i would disagree with that <laughs> <laughs> testable prediction okay well we're definitely gonna have to dig because i am just baffled at how if the human <laughs> chimpanzee y chromosome is already half the size how could you ever get a, a human and the chimpanzee being more similar than with the, when you bring in the gorilla, if the gorilla and the human are already closer in size. But I think that's where the debate's going to go. Go ahead. Have the last word, Grayson. Oh, I don't need the last word. I mean, I think I've, I've kind of said what I, my piece on this issue. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've definitely gotten in deep. Okay. So listen, Grayson, I appreciate you doing this. We said we were going to go for an hour and we've gone almost three hours and you probably, uh, yeah, you, you probably got somewhere to be. So, okay. Thank you so much to uh, the audience. Grayson, thank you so much for an impromptu debate. One to remember next Wednesday. Uh, don't worry, guys. Grayson Kent evolution on trial. Okay. God bless.